How's that for a slice of fried gold? Are you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. Well, hello, and welcome to Cinema Shock, the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. We do all the research so that you don't have to. We're the three guys that tell you everything you need to know about your favorite movies and the people who made them. So that the next time you're caught up in a nerdy movie conversation, not only will you know what is going on, you might actually be the expert. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horn. Hey, I'm your other host, film historian Justin Bishop. And I'm writer-comedian Mr. Todd A. Davis. And I just want to let you guys and all of our listeners know, you've got a friend in me. When times get tough, you'll see, we've been together for so long. Uh, when I'm weak, Gary, Justin, you make me strong. And I know I can depend on you to show me the way, see me through. Friends, through eternity, loyalty, honesty, we'll stay together through thick or thin. Friends forever. We'll be together. We're on top because we podcast to win. Thank you for joining us for a very special roulette episode from the heart of the UCF campus in beautiful Orlando, Florida. <laughs> uh, I was really hoping you would sing that. Listen, listen, I'll, I'll only do so much for free. <laughs> I have had that song stuck in my head all week. I've been yeah. singing through the house. Singing I've been, it, yes. I have been singing it all week long. I have been listening to it on, on my phone, on Apple Music. Friends through eternity, loyalty, honesty. I love it. It's a bop, honestly, for uh, for a movie that was almost lost to history. It has two pretty great, like, e like what do you call it? Uh, like earworms. Uh, earworms. earworms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I almost had earwig, which is completely different. Yeah, that's a different thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, those songs are catchy, and we'll talk about them in a minute. Anyway, for this episode of Cinema Shock Roulette, we are discussing a true cult film. And we say that we're a podcast that talks about cult and genre cinema. Some movies can be cult films and then they get to the point where the cult is so big that they become popular again among the masses, you know. But yeah. this is one that I feel like not a lot of people, not a lot of people who are into like just mainstream movies are necessarily going to know about. This movie is the type of, it's an example of the type of regional film that's more often than not lost to history. Mm -hmm. uh, rarely seen outside of a small group of people involved in its creation and maybe some of their friends and family, uh, but very little else. The film in question is one that was a true labor of love for its star and director, but was only released in a handful of theaters in Central Florida in the late 1980s before disappearing seemingly forever. 
That is, until it was rediscovered by cult film fans and re-released theatrically in 2012, where it immediately blew audiences' minds and became a sensation among genre fans. And the film that we're talking about is called Miami Connection. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We have a special treat for you today. We have a new house band with a new dimension in rock and roll. We have the one, the only, Dragon Sound! This band is the only family I have. They're all black belts in Taekwondo and they're pretty bad. I want you to mess it up by going out with a second-rate musician like that John character. They came in here to play goddamn songs for kids! Boss, everybody's done! <laughs> in case you're new here, we dive very deep on everything involved with the making of the films we discuss. So I'll just say only through the exploration of production can we eliminate spoilers. <laughs> I love that little coda at the end of this movie yeah. <laughs> uh, because it was really like they watched the movie and they're like, oh, wait, we're supposed to be anti-violence. And there's like a lot of people getting their faces sliced open with uh, samurai swords and heads being cut off. Let, let's take a quick <laughs> let's take a quick rewind in Cinema Shock friend film history. Justin, when when you and I watched King Kong, I believe it might have been my first time. There was a line at the end. Uh, where he says, uh, "Twas beauty that killed the beast." Yep. I looked at you and said one word, and what was that word? I don't remember. You don't remember? Oh, <laughs> no, I, looked, I, don't remember. I, I did. I did the most dramatic of turns and looked at you and said, "Bullshit." <laughs> he fell off the goddamn building. Yeah, that That's was what it killed was, him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. It was really the airplanes and the. Um, the long fall to the ground. That so, killed yeah. him. so when I, it was so, cause like I had, I, I don't usually audibly respond to a lot of films, um, whether or not it's for the show or whatever, but this one got an audible, got audible laughs throughout from yes, me as it should. And then when this came up, that white text on black card at the very end, I was like, where is Justin? So I can turn to him and say, <laughs> bullshit <laughs> <laughs> well before we talk about miami connection we need to talk about young Kun kim but yk kim is a korean-born martial artist who received a black belt in taekwondo at the age of 13 which at the time made him among the youngest in korea to ever do so uh, he began his martial arts career as an instructor teaching taekwondo in his native korea until 1976 when at the age of 30 he moved to buenos aires argentina to teach the art of Taekwondo. You know, his whole thing is, uh, is sending Taekwondo out to the masses, to the world. This guy with his Taekwondo, you're talking about sending it out into the world. He literally in the commentary track, Joseph Diamond and YK Kim are talking about it. And they believe in this so much that they're yeah. like, they're, there's literally a segment where they're talking about if only the leaders of Iran and the leaders of Saudi Arabia could get together and practice Taekwondo together, there would be no war. There would be no <laughs> hatred. <laughs> I was like, wow. Wow. I mean, 
Amazing. At least they, they believe what they're selling, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so he's in Argentina. And then a year later, he moved to New York City for a little bit before ultimately landing in Orlando, Florida in 1978, where he opened YK Kim's Taekwondo, which was his first martial arts school, which he purchased from a friend, uh, sight unseen, only to arrive in Florida to find out that this quote unquote school was just 10 students, a tiny room and a single mat. Sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. From your own martial arts uh, background. Uh, yeah, actually. Uh, it's funny. Um, when I read that description in the notes, I thought there's, there's a young guy uh, in Duncan, South Carolina that I actually trained who is now a master and has his own school. And it's in an old florist shop yeah. where I think square footage wise, I could probably fit his building in my living room. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I mean, I've, I've seen everything from like, uh, you know, being in old churches and old school gymnasiums and stuff like that. My first school, when I began training was actually above, was in a rec center above an ice skating rink. So (laughs) we got that extra, uh, character building by being barefoot on concrete and linoleum (laughs) above an ice skating rink. Well, Kim barely spoke English when he arrived in Orlando. He taught Taekwondo during the day and he slept on the floor of his school at night. Uh, some days he couldn't afford even to eat. Uh, still, though, when he discovered at one point that one of his students had stopped coming to class because the student's father had lost his job, they couldn't pay for it anymore. Kim actually sent the boy word that he wanted him back in class and that there would be no charge. And I and I, I put that little note in here just because that's kind, that kind of speaks to YK Kim's character, which is a big part of the story of Miami Connection. Because Kim was known to his friends and students as a humanitarian. He was always the first one to help out others in a time of need. Uh, he would later say, quote, a lot of people believe if you have a lot of money, you are powerful, famous, but a true successful person has character and has a good relationship with others. And again, that's something we're going to see time and time again with his story. So Kim continued to pursue his dreams while working to build his Taekwondo school's business. He, you know, he took a job as a janitor for a while to make a little extra money, uh, but he was still passing out handbills and relentlessly promoting his school. This guy is a self-promotion machine uh, until it had grown to upwards of 2000 students. The school later became a full franchise of martial arts school called Martial Arts World, which a writer for the Orlando Sentinel described as the McDonald's of martial arts schools, which I guess makes YK Kim the Ray Kroc of, of martial arts schools. Uh, but basically it's because he he started it and then he franchised it out to other people. Who's but, the uh, Ronald McDonald? I, w- I was going to say, <laughs> maybe the Ronald McDonald. <laughs> Well, now this franchise, Martial Arts World, boasts 10 locations across Florida, and for some reason, there's several also in Virginia. Uh, Although, since 1988, Kim has claimed ownership of only one of these locations. The other ones he sold or franchised out. But they're all part of the American Taekwondo Federation, which is an organization that Kim founded. So they all operate under the kind of the rules and regulations of the American Taekwondo Federation. Now, I'm just going to read... Kim's bio, which I think is pretty clear was written by Kim himself. Uh, this is from the Martial Arts World Orlando website. That's the the Martial Arts World location that he still owns to this day. So I'm going to read this verbatim because I'm not sure there's anything that else that I could add to this. Like I, I almost just like looked over this and kind of rewrote it in my own words, but I'm like, nah, I'm just going to read exactly what I presume was Kim writing about himself <laughs> in his biography on his website. It says, 
Supreme Grandmaster Y.K. Kim is a modern philosopher and the chairman and founder of martial arts world, the home of life champions. There is no one quite like Y.K. Kim. People call him crazy, a big liar, a a con artist, and a genius. He is proud that people call him these things because he works like crazy to transform our society one life at a time. A native of Seoul, Korea, Y.K. Kim serves as the living testament that the American dream is alive and kicking. Kicking, get it? Uh, <laughs> he, le- he left his homestead in 1976 to come to the U.S. with only his black belt and a heart full of hope. Homeless and without a green card, but imbued with a pioneer spirit, he worked hard, shedding blood, sweat, and tears to overcome cultural shock, financial difficulties, and a language barrier in order to achieve the American dream. I, I love everything about that 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 description of YK Kim. Yeah. I just love it. <laughs> uh, but I, I did want to ask you a question, Todd, because it, for our listeners who don't know, I mean, we've already mentioned it a little bit in this episode, but you have a martial arts background. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what what was your, what did you practice? What so, form of martial arts? Uh, actually still practice. Uh, tang, yeah. It's called Tang Sudo. Um, uh-huh. I always describe it as the artsier cousin of Taekwondo for a little bit of history um, uh, boiled down to a nugget here. Uh, Taekwondo and Tang Sudo actually used to be the same thing. Uh, when they split, uh, Tang Sudo became the traditional art while Taekwondo went the more popularized sport martial arts, which is why it's in the Olympics. Right. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So, but pretty similar. Very similar. Yeah. Uh, in fact, you know, there's a lot of, uh, again, trying to boil it all down and be as concise as possible. There's a lot of Korean martial arts. There's also stuff out of China, out of Japan, sure. out of, you know, Russia, out of uh, the Middle East. There's tons of different martial arts all over the world. Yeah. But in terms of Korean martial arts, they all kind of um, spawned from a collection of uh, about half a dozen different guys who were trying to set up the people to be able to stand up against an oppressive government. Okay, that, cool. That's the long and short of yeah. development of martial arts, especially there in Korea. Yeah, that was kind of so it was a lot. Of, a lot of the weapons are actually modified farming tools oh. and a lot of the techniques are basic enough to teach to anyone that's yeah like you could that's... just teach a, a peasant a farmer to stand up for himself kind of. exactly you know uh, here's a here's a standard punch here's a standard kick and it's pretty much the same across the board now once those guys you know broke off and had students who became masters of the masters uh, themselves they also broke off spread out and developed their own teaching systems and that's where you get differences in ranks and differences of teaching methodology and stuff like that. Right. Okay. So, so that biography of YK Kim, mm-hmm. uh, the title he was given is Supreme Grandmaster. Now I've heard of Grandmaster. I've heard of, uh, but what, what is, what do those titles mean? What is Grandmaster? What is Supreme Grandmaster? Do you know the difference or what denotes somebody to be a Grandmaster? Yeah. Usually it's most people are, we'll know that there are different colored belts leading up to black belt. Right. Um, you start as a white belt and you progress through different colors. And then there are like degrees of black belt, right? Exactly. Yeah. So the, the school of thought is that when you're a white belt, you know, absolutely nothing. And then as you train and progress through the colors, you get to black belt, which a lot Mm -hmm. of people think is the ultimate goal. 
No, you're just a beginner again, because now you're starting to train with other black belts and other masters. So master in, in the style that I, in the style in Tang Sudo, which I practice, master rank is given at fourth degree. Now, um, how do you get there is, you know, determined on the style and regulations under which association or group that you are a member of, but ours are very cumulative, you know, in time, knowledge, skill, that's, you know, those are pretty much the, the three main areas, but yeah, you build, uh, as a, as a black belt, you build towards second degree towards third degree. And then you go for actually a pretty extensive test to get fourth degree or master rank from there. It continues the way the teaching philosophy is with our style. The highest rank you can achieve is ninth degree. And okay. that's grandmaster. Okay. We have a grandmaster in our association. And then what we have are essentially co or assistant grandmasters. Long and short of it is we actually had a grandmaster that actually died because of the stress put on him from traveling and working as much as he was for our worldwide organization. So uh -huh. with the current grandmaster, Grandmaster Strong, we also instituted having, I uh, believe it's about half a dozen assistant grandmasters. So there uh -huh. are actually, I believe they are seventh and eighth degree masters but they are they are considered grandmaster but they are not given the title it's like anakin interesting in, okay it's yeah, like yeah, anakin yeah. in the prequels <laughs> uh, so is supreme grandmaster a typical thing or is that something because he's he is uh under the american taekwondo federation's rules which is his own organization which presumably means that he made up the rules exactly um, <laughs> so that that's that's the short version what we do is like i said the highest rank you can achieve is ninth degree mm -hmm. upon your passing you are promoted to 10th degree. Ninth degree is the highest level achievable by a living human. That's the <laughs> irony of the whole thing, right? Because then yeah. like the only other way to achieve grandmaster is through mortal combat. And then basically, you're, yeah, actually, you're actually leveling them up by killing yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. But what degree it, it, are you, Todd? I'm a second degree. Second I'm degree kind of what I'm, I'm basically a, uh, oh, I'm an old time second degree. I actually, <laughs> I actually stopped train. I began training when I was about 10 years old and then stopped training when I got into law enforcement because I was working third shift and couldn't attend classes. Mm -hmm. So recently within the last two years, I began training again but I'm still as a second degree. So if you're talking time, <laughs> I'm long, I'm long overdue for my masters, but, right, uh, right, right. but that's because I, I stopped training for a long time and I'm just getting back in and it's, gotcha. it's a lot different going through it, uh, as a uh, almost late 40 in your late year 30s. old, yeah, yeah. <laughs> having sat in a patrol car for over a decade. <laughs> uh, but well, yeah, so, so the, the, the better answer is the title Supreme Grandmaster is usually bestowed upon somebody or it's taken by whoever set up the rules, which, yeah, which in this case like, is YK Kim. Yeah, it sounds like <laughs> what he did. <laughs> sounds much like the leveling of Taco Bell going from, like, say, a seven layer burrito to a burrito supreme. Right. Exactly. <laughs> in fact, I think I read that in some of their literature. They actually make that comparison. <laughs> Well, thank you for the the history lesson, Todd. I figured you'd have some some insight on that.
Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. So back to our story about YK Kim. So fast forward a little bit to mid 1980s. Kim has established himself as a prominent member of the, uh, the Central Florida martial arts scene. And he seemed to be, you know, a pretty successful businessman. He's grown this one room little school into a full fledged franchise with mm-hmm. multiple uh, locations across two different states. Well, around this time, Kim appeared on a Korean television show called Meet at 11 p.m. M-E-E-T, for those wondering. <laughs> yes. it's not, it's not, <laughs> I thought that was another Taco Bell thing. <laughs> <laughs> I have butter bean burrito. <laughs> so he's promoting, uh, he's on this show promoting one of the many books that he has written about Taekwondo, and he's giving a martial arts demonstration, uh, showing off his skills, you know. Well, elsewhere in Korea, there's a guy that Kim describes as a very famous action movie director named Richard Park, who's watching the performance from his couch. He's watching, you know, TV at night. He sees this guy, Kim, come on, and it it catches his attention. Now, YK Kim describes Richard Park as a very famous action movie director. I'm not sure how famous he is because I had never heard of him before this movie. (laughs) So Richard Park, his given name is Wu Sang Park. Uh, He did have quite a few films under his belt by this time. So it's possible that he was maybe more well-known in Korea, but he had not had much of a career in the U.S. at this point. You sound Uh, a little like a nationalist right now, Justin. It doesn't (laughs) happen in the USA. It don't matter. I don't know how famous he was because I hadn't heard of him. (laughs) Side note, when when we started this podcast, just so everybody knows, Justin's only specific request is that the only directors we talk about have to be American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Except Verhoeven. Uh, but that was only because RoboCop and Starship Troopers were how he thought peacekeeping should work. <laughs> Not satire at all. No, no, no. <laughs> well, Richard Park had spent seven years as the assistant director to Korea's master filmmaker M. Kwan Taek before breaking out on his own. And then his first film as a director of his own was in 1975 with a martial arts film called Mortal Battle, which starred Huang Jang Lee, who was best known to Western audiences as Thunderfoot from Jackie Chan's first drunken master film. He'd go on to direct several other films in Korea, movies with names like Blazing Fists, My Name is Twin Legs, and Manager of the Shaolin Hall, before running afoul of a Thorian President Park Chun-hee's strict censorship laws and doing a bit of jail time. Uh, so to escape that, he actually moved to the U.S. He moved to St. Louis, Missouri in 1977. Hmm. But then after President Park was assassinated in late 1979, he actually returned back to Korea to shoot a movie called Return of the Great Fighter, which is fitting, I guess, since he was returning to Korea. But then he went back to America after that, and he made several movies about the immigrant experience, the first of which was a movie called L.A. Street Fighters, also released in some uh, territories as Ninja Turf, and that was in 1985. Uh, the film featured Philip Ree and Jun Chong in the lead roles and is probably most notable as being the feature film debut of a guy named Thomas F. Wilson, a.k.a. Biff Tannen from Back to the Future, which was also released in 1985. I'm sure that Thomas Wilson um, talks about one of those movies a little bit more than the other one. Yeah. <laughs> Although I am curious, do, do you, either of you know, was he the same? Was he also a bully in that movie? No, he, uh, I watched LA street fighters actually. Oh yeah. <laughs> to, to prepare for this episode. Uh, it's not good. Um, <laughs> it, it is not a good, it is not a good movie. It uh, features all of the incompetence of Miami connection and none of the charm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, l- best ladies way I can and gentlemen, it. that is the type of dedication <laughs> That we bring to this show each each episode, giving yeah. you 
the deep, deep cuts on all it, of these films. It's on Tubi. I, I saw that it was on Tubi. And I was like, well, I got to watch it. And <laughs> I will say that my my experience watching it and, and Thomas F. Wilson's role is very, very small. It's like ah. practically a cameo. Gotcha. But I will say that my experience watching it was probably hindered by the transfer that Tubi has right now, which looks like it probably came from a DVD uh, released like you know one of those cheapo dvds uh yeah. over the years but decided. it's it looks awful <laughs> like it looks like the whole movie was shot through a screen door like, oh, <laughs> uh. terrible and i know it's the same cinematographer as miami connection and he does good work in miami mm-hmm. connection he, say what you will about any of the we'll, we'll get into the miami connection in a bit but um the cinematography is pretty good uh, mm-hmm. for a movie this cheap. And so I know that he can do good work. So I really think it was just a transfer thing, but LA street fighters is it's not great. I mean, the, it doesn't have like the eighties cheese that you get from Miami connection. That makes it right. as charming as it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the fight scenes are fine. I mean, they're okay. The fight, you know, they're, they're on par with what you see here. It's they're professional martial artists. And at least it stars guys who are actors, although none of them, like English is their second language for all of the main actors. So the performances are not, not great, but if you want to see what else, you know, Richard Park has done, that's the easiest one to find. Nice. Did anybody watch my name is twin legs? Nope. I did not watch my name. is Twin Legs. I I saw that title. and was like, Oh, that is super tempting. Yeah. It's weird in Korea. I'm known as triplet legs. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Tell tell us why Gary. (laughs) Yeah. Explain. Oh, I think, I think, you know, This movie, so L.A. Street Fighters, back to that. So it, it was, like I said, it was also called Ninja Turf in some places. Uh, there are no ninjas in it, so I'm not sure why it was called Ninja Turf. There's not a single ninja in the whole movie. Uh, but when it came out, Variety called it a poorly staged and crudely made film, while Box Office Mag- Magazine simply said, "Is a quote, this is a joke, right? <laughs> That was from their review. <laughs> but, but regardless, the film, which was shot for a mere $200,000, so it was cheap. You know, it got licensed to RCA Columbia uh, to their home video department, and it actually wound up on shelves of every video store in the country. So it ended up making money. So anyway, back to where we are in the development of Miami Connection. You've got Richard Park. He's watching. He's eating popcorn on his, his couch, watching TV, about to go to bed, and he sees YK Kim pop up on this Korean television show. And now I'm just going to get this out of the way. A lot of the story here comes from interviews with YK Kemp himself, who seems to be really good at self-mythologizing. So I would say take all of this with a grain of salt. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. according to him, Park is watching him. And in watching his demonstration, he gets just like a spark of inspiration. And he's like, I've just got to make a movie with this guy. So Richard Park gets on an airplane and immediately flies to Orlando to meet YK Kemp. That seems <laughs> legit. Yeah, he's, he's the most beautiful angel. <laughs> he was my next starlet. That's my muse. <laughs> and Kim would later say about this, he said, I was so excited like a teenager to produce a movie and become a famous action movie star. I felt my dream was becoming a reality. The way he held people's noses with his toes. which <laughs> is beautiful. That is such a weird, the weirdest thing. And let me, and- let me just say... <laughs> As a practitioner of Korean martial arts, that's not a move. <laughs> no, that's just something he does. It's a party trick. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> yeah is, it's it's a something... signature thing that he does. I, I, on the commentary, they talk about that like it was a big thing he would do at exhibitions, and people like would go crazy like in the crowds. So they just that became like a thing that he just started doing. 
Yeah, and I think the, the guy he does it to, Maurice, what's his name? Maurice Smith, who plays Jim, he did not know he was going to do that in that scene. Like, uh, he, he kind of told him he was going to do something, but he didn't tell exactly what it was until he just get, got your nose, but with, you know, his toes. <laughs> what what I thought was even better was that at least on a movie set, you get to, you know, you can prep for that. You can clean your feet. You can mm-hmm. get ready. Mm-hmm. But I was watching, like, their uh dragon sound debut at fantastic fest or yeah, something yeah. or and he does it there too yeah he yeah. literally takes his shoe off during it he would sock off stinky ass feet God. and <laughs> some only, people only pay... supreme only supreme grandmaster yk cam that's and a movie that you don't learn extra until you're on, supreme uh, taekwondo only fans for that <laughs> <laughs> Taekwondo fans. <laughs> I love it. Love it. That's great. Well, Park's initial idea was to have YK Kim in a co-starring role in a film that was actually originally supposed to be a star vehicle for a martial artist turned actor named Bobby Kim, who had previously appeared in several of, uh, of Richard Park's Korean films. And Bobby Kim's story, by the way, is a fascinating one on its own. I'll I'll give you the Cliff's Notes version of it here. But he was a Taekwondo grandmaster who worked as an instructor uh, for the U.S. military in the 60s and 70s. Because Taekwondo in the 60s and 70s was not known at all in the U.S. So he taught taught Taekwondo to to the military uh, before becoming an actor. And when he became an actor, he was often known as the Oriental Bronson, not to be confused with Bronson Lee, which was the moniker of a Japanese eighth degree black belt karate champion named Tadashi Yamashita, who was in, he was in several of those Bruce exploitation films that cropped up after, uh, after Bruce Lee died. Remember we talked about that when we did our, uh, what was that? Our Kill Bill series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. When we talked I'm about glad Bruce you spelled Lee. all of this out because I was totally confused by, I thought for sure Bronson Lee was Bobby Kim or what, whatever you just said. Yeah, it's a different, note, uh, did I, had, I had to dig to, to make sure they were different people, but uh, thankfully I've got a, this, one of my, one of the sources I used on this was uh, These Fist Break Bricks. The uh, the book by Grady Hendricks and Chris Poggiali. Sorry if I'm saying your name wrong. Uh, outstanding resource for the history of like martial arts movies coming to the U.S. I would highly recommend it to anyone that's. Uh, interested I was in just I was just so. being a smart ass about you but, being a nerd. Yeah, no, um, I, I, I <laughs> and then I proved it by yeah. telling you. Uh, <laughs> side note: did, did we just hear Justin call that guy Oriental? I think we're um, really learning something. I am. That was a Justin. quote. Uh, <laughs> I did not come up with that moniker. What is, is this him. the eighties? <laughs> I, I guess it kind of is. <laughs> somebody else came up with that name for him, but that that is what he was known as. Yeah, because when I saw that, and, and I saw some places online that did refer to them as if they were the same person, because they both had they both had like mustaches, like it, they both looked like an Asian version of Charles Bronson because they had a big old mustache, similar full bodied hair, you know, but they are two different people. And and I mean, they're from completely different countries, but uh, there are some people online that talk about them as if they're the same person. And they, from my research are absolutely not because I just told you what their real names are. So (laughs) (laughs) anyway, Bobby Kim would eventually drop out of the film for reasons unknown. I could not find anywhere to say why he decided not to do this. Uh, I'm probably scheduling or something weird like that. Who knows? But the project ends up getting reworked as a star vehicle for YK Kim and for his belief that Taekwondo could bring about world peace. Well, there's your problem right there. You don't think the Taekwondo can bring about world peace, Todd? Listen, I'm really- That's why you're only a second degree. I'm really (laughs) going to try to stay off my soapbox here, but anybody who thinks that- 
uh, you know, t- uh, martial arts practitioners are these philosophical, you know, uh, master gurus is is fooling themselves. Can't <laughs> some just, of them be? I mean, I I guess, but I mean, you end up never hearing about them. They live in a <laughs> in a forest alone, and if yeah, a, well. if a martial arts master falls in the middle of a forest and no one's around to hear their bullshit, does it really matter? <laughs> <laughs> Todd, you said you weren't going to get on your, your soapbox. And that's it. That's and then it. you started. Yeah. But yeah, then you started. I'm, I'm trying just, to stay just, off my soapbox. That's just Taekwondo, Todd. <laughs> but, uh, no, that's all does, the time we have on the Cinema Shock, folks. <laughs> it does well, sound like you, you make Taekwondo grandmasters sound like they're people living in the forest, like just masturbating in the woods and like eating their own like grandmasturbating. Yeah. They are human, just like anybody else. They're just like bald beards and just like crazy people. <laughs> so Kim and Park begin to discuss a concept for this film, although Park actually claims that the initial idea for the story came to him while watching Kim's interview on that Korean television show. Like it was just a light bulb went off and he had this idea for the movie. Who knows what the real story is? The the two of them, they agreed that good realistic action films were few and far between. And they set out to make their own. They want, they're, they're like, you know what the, all this bullshit, all these action movies coming out in the eighties, this Arnold Schwarzenegger, this Sylvester Stallone bullshit. We can do better than that. Right. That's where they're coming from on this. So, of course, they began developing a story and soon filming would begin in uh, Orlando, Orlando, Florida, not Miami. This film doesn't actually feature Miami at all. There's not a single moment in this, Uh, even when they're on the beach, which is not Orlando because Orlando is landlocked. Uh, Even when they're on the beach, they were not in Miami. (laughs) That was Daytona Beach. But listen, everybody keeps saying that this was not nothing is in Miami, but it features shots of the skyline. (laughs) Sure. okay, (laughs) but uh, that counts for something, I guess. That was stock footage. Yeah. But in the commentary, they do say that that whole opening is in Miami. On the dock? Yeah, the dock. Why would you need to go to Miami to shoot that? You could shoot that at literally on a lake down the street from my house. I don't know. Justin, it's called Miami Connection. Like, (laughs) of course it's going to be in Miami. Of course. It was not originally called Miami Connection. It was called Against the Ninja originally. Against the Miami Ninjas. (laughs) And then it was called Escape from Miami. And then it was called Escape from Miami. So, listen, either way. to escape. Well, that's why they changed the name. They're like, this doesn't make any sense. (laughs) But they still had that Miami connection because of that scene. So that's, so there you go. I think they were trying to do a French connection thing is what they were trying to do. Uh, Or Chinese connection. Or Chinese connection or Italian connection. There's a hundred of them. They are Korean, both of you. Why did they call it the Korean connection then? But because it's in Miami, Justin. (laughs) It's in Orlando. Well, is I know this, they're Korean. I say a there's Laurel a Laurel and Hardy bit. Did we fall backwards into a Laurel and Hardy bit? <laughs> I'm saying it's the Miami connection. I get it's fun, but they have their drug connection in Miami. That's all okay. they promised you. Sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll give you that one, Gary. So this may surprise you as you watch the film, but there was no script written for this movie. What? Uh, <laughs> there was there was a story outline. But everything else was almost completely improvised. And as you might have noticed, the untrained cast were not the best improvisers. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) 
No, it's funny. I don't even think when they were coming up with the uh, like outline of the story that they did anything <laughs> but improvise. Like literally, okay, so this is a direct quote from the commentary. The the guy asked, like, what was your idea to like put some of these elements in there? Joseph Diamond, uh, Kim passes it on to him, and Joseph Diamond says, uh, quote, as incredible as it was, we decided to merge ninjas and bikers and drug dealers and Colombians and Taekwondo and anything else we could think of that would be timely and exciting and an opportunity to create something very unique that takes from or borrows from what's already existing, but puts it together in a way that's never been done before. Mm, they should have thrown some robots in there, honestly, then. Yeah. They really should have. Uh, <laughs> Let's go but, for it. Kim is always, again, this is the thing you'll see about YK Kim. He's just like, the focus was on themes of friendship in the band. Then the excitement followed about the family. The family that kicks together sticks together. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> if that, that better be on the back of my Dragon Sound t-shirt I just ordered. <laughs> well, Kim would end up mortgaging the 10 Taekwondo schools that he still owned at the time in order to finance the film. And the final budget of the film... It's in question, but a lot of sources say a million dollars. Kim himself said that he lost track of the amount a long time ago, uh, while co-producer William Young has has said that the sum was, quote, seven figures a couple times over. So whatever that means, maybe a couple million bucks. So all of you people giving it credit for a low budget, pay attention, because probably (laughs) not. Probably like more Avatar level. (laughs) (laughs) And as is often the case in small regional films like this one, the cast of Miami Connection is filled with mostly unknown actors, many of which have very few, if any, additional credits. YK Kim did all of the casting. He didn't elaborate on how he chose in anything <laughs> I saw with him. He just said 99% were my students. I asked them to join. They did. Yeah, that's that was pretty much it. That's the casting process on most of this. A lot of these guys are just people that he knew. I mean, that's it. <laughs> That's that's what it came down to. Kim himself stars in the film as Mark, who is the rhythm guitarist for the band Dragon Sound, who moonlights as, well, what else? A taekwondo instructor. The other members of Dragon Sound are made up of Vincent Hirsch as John. That's the band's bass guitarist. He's kind of the hero of the movie. He's Jane's boyfriend. Uh, He's the big, tall, lanky guy. He gets pushed to the edge at the end. It rips his shirt off. Oh, it's so good. He goes crazy. (laughs) <laughs> uh, you've got Joseph Diamond as Jack, which is Dragon Sound's drummer. Angelo Gennati as Tom. He's the lead guitarist and the vocalist for Dragon Sound. He's the guy who looks like he's in Hall and Oates. Uh, and Maurice Smith as Jim, who is the band's keyboardist. So something weird that I experienced while I was watching this was when I saw Angelo Gennati, um, I actually mistook him for Pat E. Johnson. Most famous. You you do you just don't know the name. He's the he's the center referee in uh, the first Karate Kid movie. Okay, <laughs> he looked. They, they I was like, oh, this must have been like before he did Karate Kid. But um, Pat E. Johnson has actually a really uh, interesting. Well, he's got a distinct look, but he's a big martial arts instructor in addition to working in a bunch of movies. Movies that include Enter the Dragon. The first four Karate Kid movies, the first three Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies, the first two Mortal Kombat movies, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Batman and Robin, Wild Wild West, Imposter, Green Street Hooligans, 
and Punisher Warzone. Wow. To name a few. Yeah. But yeah. they are, but they are two different people. Yeah. Angelo Giannotti. I mean, he looks like John Oates to me. I mean, he's yeah. got the whole, he's got the whole curly mullet, the mustache. And when I was look, doing a little research, trying to see if anyone in the cast had done anything else, um, I went on Wikipedia and the only, there are only two names you could like click on uh, other than YK Kim that had their own Wikipedia page. And one of them was Maurice Smith, who plays Jim the, the keyboardist, when you clicked on it, though, it, t- it takes you to the profile of Maurice Smith, who was a UFC fighter, a UFC heavyweight champion. And let me tell you, it is not the same guy. No, uh, <laughs> I even did. I did a Google search for it. And there were people on Reddit talking about it as if they were the same guy. And I'm sorry, but I've 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 seen recent interviews with Maurice Smith from the movie. And I can guarantee you it is not Maurice Smith, the UFC, the UFC fighter. fighter. It is yeah. not Although, the same guy. <laughs> they did say he won like a world championship at one point. He so. was, I mean, he was a martial artist and he was, I believe, a door-to-door vacuum salesman at this time when he auditioned for the movie. And he says that basically they they asked him to try out for the movie because they his quote was something along the lines of they needed uh that color. They, they uh-huh. wanted a black. They wanted a black guy in the role. Is what yeah, it was. Yeah. And he was like the he was like the black guy they knew. Uh, and he does all the heavy lifting of all the acting. He's he, going to bring he out sure the tears and everything. And he's he never sure. acted professionally again. He, he, I think, he just went on to sales and everything. And he, he did like an online sales channel or something like that. Yeah. Um, wow. I don't know. All those guys. The band leader guy that was the villain, like the sub villain, was yeah, a yeah. federal prosecutor. What? <laughs> oh my God. This is weird stuff. The guy You're who all... like tries to pick the fight with the club owner. Yeah. 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 That would. The little, little guy with the beard. <laughs> well, the rest of the cast consists of Kathy Collier as Jane. Uh, William Urgle as Jeff, who is Jane's brother, and he's one of the like other villains of the film. This movie has like three villains, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you had uh, another one of the villain- villains is uh, Sai Young Jo. He plays uh, Yashido, who's the leader of the Gang of Ninjas. And then director Richard Park actually has a small role in the film, which also allows him to show off some of his own martial arts skills. He plays Uncle Song, who's the guy who owns the restaurant where the band hangs out. You know, and he, he gets like those guys try to walk out on their bill at one point. He yeah. ends up getting in a fight with them out in the parking lot. So that was Richard Park. Uh, and that's him kind of showing off that he is also a martial artist. And he gets to do it. He's pretty good, too. You know, now you might have noticed if you watched this movie and hopefully you did. Uh, that many of these folks might have been trained in the martial arts, but certainly were not trained as actors. <laughs> a lot of the uh, a lot of the people in the film we mentioned this before, but a lot of them were in fact students of Kim's. Some of whom, like Vincent Hirsch, had actually gone on to open their own martial arts school in Central Florida. So uh, he was no longer a student uh, uh, at Kim's school. He actually had his own school, and some of the other ones did as well. Per Joseph Diamond and YK Kim, I mean, when I said. 99% of the people they said like literally 99% of the people in this movie were students of Kim. Like the audience in the club for Dragon Sound is all him students. Uh, <laughs> like I think he had something like 10,000 students at this time or something. Yeah. Between um, all the schools that would make sense. Literally the only people not students were like maybe the Angelo and and Kelly we'll talk about but then like Sion Joe, John yeah. Leeson, uh the director, you know, uh Joe was the white ninja gang leader guy for anybody wondering uh he was another grandmaster out of like i believe uh kim said Kanpai, who he just admired and asked him to be in the film and okay. so th- th- even the younger folks like a couple of the 
young gang members that were there. The guy who does the weird dance before he fights. Uh, oh, I love that guy. I love that little <laughs> jig that he does. Yeah, he'd been a student of Ken since he was like five. Wow. And uh, like, I think even those scenes in, in uh, Miami that I talked about the opening, it was like he had a school in Miami. So they shot down there and they had like. That's the Miami connection. That's the Miami ah, connection. All right. There it is. And you mentioned Vincent Hirsch and he and William Urgel, who was the. Just the coolest bad guy ever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, with that, that is a toupee that he is wearing, by the way. <laughs> Douche Basel <laughs> brother Jeff. Uh, they are best friends even to this day. And we're wow. longtime students of Kim, who you, you kind of mentioned that, but uh, he trusted them in the bigger roles. And in fact, at the ending, that at that point, you know, we're going to talk about it, but there's some reshoots and CM Joe wasn't available to perform in that fight. So it's actually William Urgel as the, as the ninja. ninja. Yeah. Oh, okay. oh, wow. Interesting. Well, so a lot of them, like, like Gary's saying, were people that Kim had taught. Uh, they were his students. They were other martial artists. But others, uh, like Kathy Collier and Angelo Gennady, were hired as actors almost by accident. Gennady was hired because he was a musician. They needed someone to write some of the songs, which is why we never see him fight in the film. Uh, in fact, when he's not singing, uh, he's mostly just getting beat up uh, either by other by the, by the ninjas or by women on the beach where <laughs> they, he gets pushed into those women and they just beat the shit out of him. Well, to, to be to be fair, they don't make buns like that at the bakery. Anymore. Oh, man. That, oh, I was waiting for somebody to use that. one. That's, yeah. my, that's what maybe my favorite line in the movie, to be honest. And that I feel like that's YK Kim. Yeah, he he's being naughty, but he's yeah. like such a nice guy that that's as far as he'll take it. Okay, I, I retract my earlier statement. That's the quote I want on the back of my Dragon Sound T-shirt <laughs> with with an arrow pointing down at your ass. Yeah, exactly. That's yes, it. yes, that's the one. Uh, well, so Janati had heard that they were looking to hire someone to write the songs for the film, and he applied for the job. And his fiance at the time was Kathy Collier, who was also a musician, and she was the lead singer of an all-girl rock band called French Kiss. So the two of them went to interview for the job of, of uh, you know, creating the songs for Dragon Sound. And during this interview, the way they described it is they were kind of, they were asked to perform and to kind of dance and stuff, which they thought was kind of odd, uh, but it's like as if they were on the stage. But they go along with it because they really want the job. And then later they receive a phone call saying that they had gotten the job, uh, but that they had been cast in the film and they had not even been aware that they were actually auditioning. They thought they were just trying to get a job writing the music. And they were, they were in fact accidentally cast as the two lead characters, the two of the lead characters in the film. Angelo says his sister, I think maybe his sister might've been a student, but per him, she was taking photos for, YK Kim's Taekwondo book. They say in the commentary, by the way, that the reason he's always beat up is just because it seemed like he already got to be cool with the guitar. And so the audience would sympathize with him. So that first scene, like uh, where he gets punched in the face and in the car, mm -hmm. uh, they just felt like it just worked for him to get beat up. So also he can't fight. Know. So, you know, yeah. what um, else do you do with a, a martial art, a guy who's playing a martial artist, but can't fight. You have him be the guy who gets beat up and kidnapped. Yeah. But yeah, Angelo found out from his sister that they needed musicians. So that's how they heard about the whole thing. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, the first song that they were asked to write was Against the Ninja, which, as we mentioned, is the original title of the film. And they wrote it using notes from Kim with Gennady writing the music and Collier writing most of the lyrics on that song. And then they wrote a second song, one that was Gennady describes as very guitar heavy. And he was really proud of it. So he takes it to Kim and Kim hated it the song. He just hated it. Uh, so it was back to the drawing board. Janati goes home that night. 
uh, went another went home to write another song. This one was a lot more synthesizer heavy, and uh, Kim loved this song. That song was, of course, Friends. Friends through eternity, loyalty, honesty will stay together through thick or thin. Friends forever will be together. We're up top because we play to win. Got a friend in me. Uh, after Kim said he hated the second song, which Angelo says he still thinks is cool, by the way. Uh, so he went back to the drawing board and he wrote Friends, which is pretty fucking similar to Against the Ninja. Yeah. But uh, according to him, they were written in haste. Uh, it was literally like, we need this song. They wrote it that night. Come back. Perfect. We need this song. They wrote it that night. They come back. We hate it. Write the next one the next night. And yeah. so <laughs> and, uh, about Friends, Kim and uh, David say, one of the real messages we wanted to get across in this film was the true meaning of friendship and through martial art, the true meaning of family happiness. Having that with the group of friends together, it made a whole lot of sense to have a song about it. It was very simple what the strategy here was. It was to sing about friendship as friends and to build up the idea that we do anything for each other. A lot of fucking friendship going on here. Man, mm-hmm. you know what? Friends are family. That's true. Family that kicks together sticks together. So <laughs> yeah. uh, according to Kathy, like uh, she and Angela have talked about like trying to break out a tour for Dragon Sound. But, oh man, uh, I would go. God. Oh, but, uh, if they toured and and like showed the movie like on, on the screen behind them, I would absolutely be there. Oh, that would be awesome. But I think the song they're <laughs> let's, talking Let's get on the horn to radio room, fellas. <laughs> there you go. I think the song they're talking about is called Tough Guys. That was the rejected one because... Um. Kim wasn't a fan of like how heavy it was. Or the so tough guys guitars. is in tough guys is in the movie. Oh, is it tough? It's, guys yeah, tough movie? tough guys plays when we see the um, the ninjas on their motorcycles, like oh, when shit. they're all on their motorcycles. Yeah. Oh, that, that's right. I don't. Yeah. I yeah. I mean, I know that's I'm trouble in the night, looking for a fight. Don't be a fool, trying to be so cool. You're messing with their lives. They'll cut you down to size. Best of what you're doing with your messing, messing, messing with the tough guys. <laughs> It sounds, sings you know. the hits. <laughs> it sounds like something off Team America. It sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it sure does. <laughs> oh. uh, but uh. listen, Angelo's good. If, if these are, as he put it, in haste, I can't say his lyrics are like Bob Dylan level, but God damn, no, he but got a catchy song. They're catchy as hell. And honestly, you can't give them too much shit on the lyrics because they're writing based on what YK Kim wants. And the That's first true. song against the ninja is just about Taekwondo and fighting ninjas. It's about how good Taekwondo is and how much ninjas suck. That's how, that's how that whole song's about. Uh, I love the Taekwon, Taekwon. That's a great chant to get your crowd going. I love it. Right. <laughs> uh, and you know, he's uh, Angelo, by the way, has actually been like a session guitarist for like lots of cool bands, like uh, the Backstreet Boys. Oh, uh, hey. But as of uh, pre-pandemic, he was in at least a band called Skin Deep, and uh, he's also playing uh, in the band for the godfather of praise and worship, Dr. Ron Cannoli. Ron Cannoli? Uh, it's spelled sounds... K-E-N-O-L-Y. <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah. So it's it like kid like... and the back part of holy. Ron Cannoli just sounds like a, a mascot for a, a, a franchise of Italian bakeries. Uh, <laughs> He's the Ronald McDonald of the cannoli industry. It look 
a lot of folks might not know that before it was the Mario Brothers, there was <laughs> there's also Ron Cannoli. There was Ron Cannoli. <laughs> Uh, Kathy uh, <laughs> does not play out anymore, uh, as far as I can tell, but she does have a daughter who has, uh, plays a lot in Florida who's like in a pretty significant following. Her name is Emily Lucas. If you okay. want to look her up, she has oh. like thousands and thousands of followers. So Please tell me she does me. some covers of Dragon Sound. I don't, you know, I, I heard an interview with Kathy and, uh, she said they at least walk through the house singing the songs a lot. They're nice. Playing. They get stuck in your head and they are not going anywhere. That's the thing. <laughs> so, Again, as we've said, pretty much none of these folks have any credits outside of this film, but there is one guy who does. There's an actor named John Leeson who's credited in the film as professor professor number one. He's like the computer science professor in that one oh, classroom okay. scene, you know? Yeah, so yeah. Leeson uh, is actually an English actor. He's speaking in an American accent here, but he's an English actor and a voice artist who is most well-known as the voice of the robot dog canine in Doctor Who and its spinoff, The Sarah Jane Adventures. Oh, and uh, that little tidbit, I think, is probably the closest we're going to get to any of these actors appearing in Star Trek, unless Todd is going to pull a, a big surprise out of his ass. Well, um, I, let me... Todd, before you start, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Let me just jump in here. And I meant to say this before we started recording, but this could also be like just a fun little tidbit either way. But are we 100% positive that is the same guy? Because no. when you click on him in <laughs> IMDb, it definitely is not the same guy. Like it it goes to, uh, and, and, and Leeson in the Doctor Who guy does uh -huh. not have Miami Connection in his credits at all. Ah, well, maybe it is a different guy then. I mean, it's possible, like the Murray Smith thing that I, I dug into, but I, I couldn't find anything on this that would indicate that it was like 100% a different guy, but it's possible. It's a, it's a completely different dude. I just think it's it's real far-fetched that Wacky Kim pulled in some Doctor Who leverage for his I mean, film. yeah, I mean, well, he, yeah, he would have been in Doctor Who after this, probably, so... If it this, was, if, if he it was, was the, the Sarah, if it was Sarah Jane Adventures Sarah Jane era, Adventures, that was that would have been much later than this. But uh, who knows? I, that, we could be wrong, so take that with a grain of salt as well. Because again, this is one of those movies where it everyone in it is so obscure that <laughs> it's hard to find. We need to take down all these questions for like times when we finally get it together to go to conventions and stuff. Then we can ask all these people these yeah. questions. Yes. Yeah, these yes. random ass questions will be like where did you pull that out of uh kurt if you're listening uh if you we need you to go back through all the episodes and find <laughs> just make a, all the questions a series of questions of, uh, <laughs> just make a list of things we don't know <laughs> <laughs> that's it that's uh, all we need oh so uh yeah so if you if you think miami connection doesn't have any surprises in store you're right there's nobody in Star Trek. <laughs> I was about to say, bum, what bum. do you got here, Todd? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I went through it, and yeah, it's, I mean, Justin, you set it up perfectly. It's a lot of local folks who, this is this is the credit that they this have is on one. their resume. This is it. Yeah, this is it. There's a handful of folks that have something other than this. Some uh, of the behind-the-scenes folks, yeah. Yeah, and but honestly, there is one person in the cast that I'd like to be buddies with. And it isn't Buddy, it's Goodwin. Robert <laughs> G. Goodwin. Robert uh, Goodwin, all right. Who's yeah, that? He, he's one of the ninjas, uh, but he did some stunt work on Robin Hood Men in Tights mm -hmm. uh, in 93 and Sherlock Holmes in uh, 2009. But what I want to know is, I want to know what it was like working with anti-vaxxer Jenny McCarthy Wahlberg 
as fight choreographer on Playboy College Girls. <laughs> There's a fight in that? What is it, a pillow fight? It must be. I mean, <laughs> to be fair, IMDb has it listed as a documentary. So I mean, what else would it be? I'm super curious to learn about <laughs> Well, no, I mean, no, no, no. Documentary, if I've got a, but it's going to fight choreography. Okay? Yeah, if I've yeah. got to do the research and and go watch the entirety of Playboy College Girls, I can I can do that for the show. How, it's, for, how, it's for science. It's for yeah, science. This is research. <laughs> it's research. Uh, how how long do you think it would take you to get through uh, Playboy College Girls? I mean, if you're watching it in 10 second increments, it'd be. A, I mean, give me a little bit of credit. It'd be 30 oh, okay. second increments. 30, but... 30 second. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> 90 minute movie. 90 minutes say it's 90 minutes 30 seconds what is that 100 i don't 180 100, viewings yeah, yeah that's 180 sessions how many times can you one, go in a day no we're just going to do one session a day let's not wear ourselves out so we're talking a good six months okay, okay. all right six yep months. so uh we'll follow kurt, up during our kurt, uh, sam raimi spider-man series <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah kurt we're gonna need you to make a note that uh in about six months time justin is due with his uh review and, I like that you're talking um, to our one of our listeners, Kurt, as if he's like a producer that's sitting in the room with us right now. Like he's he's working the uh, the soundboard over here. Uh-huh, he basically uh-huh. is. Yeah, he basically he should get producing credit. <laughs> well, Miami Connection was shot completely guerrilla style, like a true exploitation movie. They had no permits and no permission to shoot in many of the locations where they would film. They were uh, hanging in trees and they were, lots of bananas. No, and, yeah. gorillas don't hang in trees. No, no they don't. They're, they're too big, aren't they? Oh. No, I mean, come on. They probably could get up at trees, right? Yeah. Maybe. I don't, I don't know. know. I'm going to Google it. Google it. <laughs> but Dude, go- this, is not a, this is not a wildlife podcast. We don't know. But <laughs> yeah. So they, they yeah. would simply like go out and shoot. And in the case of like the film's first major fight scene, which takes place in the middle of the street at night, you know, I think that's the one that starts after the guy, after what's his name, pours beer on everyone's head. And yeah, you can yeah. see Vincent Hirsch like lean into getting his... The, yeah, on his head. <laughs> but uh let me get when, some of that yeah <laughs> that was like the 15th take or something i think so he's he just they were like what that's the best we got i guess yeah. uh but when they went to shoot that scene they just waited until like two or three in the morning when there wouldn't be anyone out there wouldn't be any traffic and they could fight out in the road uh so that's how they did this movie um just for the record uh gorillas live primarily on the ground they spend only five to twenty percent of the day in trees whereas mm-hmm. chimpanzees spend 47 to 61 percent of the day above the ground and orangutans uh almost 100 percent of their time in trees but gorillas do like to climb in order to play or to harvest fruit or um, film movies <laughs> or film movies. but now we know yeah. uh that's don't say that education. don't say that you don't learn stuff on cinema shock folks i mean besides yeah. just movie stuff but back this to is- movie stuff uh early on it was the case that yes they did not have their proper stuff in order and so they were constantly trying to outwit the cops and go late at night and stuff like that uh <laughs> at one time i think it was in the uh the very first big fight scene, it was uh, it's a place called Church Street Station in Orlando. It's actually uh, like a pretty lively spot there in Orlando. It's still around. You could do it. It was uh, it's got a lot of history. But uh, in that Church Street Station area, the uh, cops did come thinking there was a real fight uh, hmm. and they all almost got arrested. Uh, but once they called it in, I guess um, him was pretty well known in Orlando at the time due to holding plenty of those exhibitions like I talked about and they would right. like, literally draw like thousands of people and it would raise lots of money for charity so uh per diamond he was admired by the mayor police commissioner and sheriff and everything so they just gave them licenses when they needed it oh wow they just kind of let them slide 
Yeah, Kim's swinging that Taekwon dick. (laughs) Making stuff happen. Oh, boy. (laughs) Yeah, and for the biker bar scene, uh, they did ask permission. Uh, because I'm guessing you just don't show up at a bar full of bikers to start filming without asking first. That's Uh, ill-advised. Yeah, yeah, not not a great idea. And they actually paid the bikers in beer. And the uh, the cinematographer was a guy guy named uh, Maximo Munzi, which is a great name, honestly. Uh, He would just point his camera and start shooting the scene, like almost documentary style. Uh, And he was essentially, he was able to shoot it that way because he knew that he could simply edit the footage together in a coherent way because he was also the editor of the film and he knew exactly what had been shot so when it came time to edit the film it wasn't like it wasn't a mystery to him he he was shooting with editing in mind and editing knowing what what footage already existed so it made it a little bit easier and uh oh and by the way when they're doing this whole scene uh kathy collier who you know plays jane she was running around she she got stuck with the job of getting um all the bikers to sign release forms so that they could be in the film, which had to be pretty intimidating. Uh, and, oh, and by the way, Maximo Munzi, he had actually worked with Richard Park on LA street fighter. So the, these two had actually oh. worked together before. And Munzi's nice. actually had a pretty long career. He shoots a lot of like, they look like Hallmark movies mostly, but oh. he, he's still working. By the way, some of the biker scenes where they're riding on the streets, those were in Miami too. FYI, Just okay, that out there. Uh, but the but did, the they, biker... did they take the did they take the Miami connection to get there? <laughs> the uh, I'm just throwing this out because I see this all the time. Nothing's in Miami, but I'm like, there's some stuff in Miami. There's a connection to Miami. Um, anyway, the uh, biker bar was just north of Orlando, and uh, they apparently really hated the German car that the actors rolled up in. Uh, but uh, otherwise, we're game for anything since there was beer. And Joseph Diamond says that they uh, hung out and drank all day long. So he said it was actually <laughs> kind of cool for us because as the day wore on and they drank more and more, the shots got better and better. But he means the ladies started taking their titties out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and probably that one guy say. wrecking his bike. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, apparently for when the actual premiere happened, there was like a hundred bikers that showed up. for. Uh, so, they wanted to see themselves uh, in the movie. Of course. That's awesome. Uh, Joseph Tyman with me was, they were like, so what's the deal with the motorcycles and the, the ninjas and everything. And as he said, uh, this, this was the detailed explanation quote, motorcycles are hot, you know? And to put ninjas on motorcycles, nobody's ever done that before. And you know I what? Mean, they got to get it around to hey, it somehow. You know what? This holds is- water. That holds water. <laughs> that holds water. <laughs> Nobody ever put ninjas on motorcycles. So I feel like somebody time. probably had at some point. I feel like by, by 1988 or whatever, surely a ninja's been on a motorcycle. Uh, Kurt, we need you to make a list of uh, all <laughs> the movies. Kurt alone. We're not paying him. <laughs> So Maximo Munzi wasn't the only one doing double duty on the film. I already mentioned how Collier and Gennady had also been moonlighting as the songwriters for Dragon Sounds songs. Uh, and in fact, Collier, I, I also said she did the, uh, she had to get the release forms. I don't think that was an actual job. They just kind of gave her a little assignment. But she also was doing triple duty, serving as the film's makeup department. Uh, which is a job that she got because she had spent a little bit of time in beauty school. So they're like, oh, you know how to do makeup. You can do the makeup. Now, I'm not talking about makeup effects. Uh, I'm talking about just the regular everyday makeup. Ah, There was another guy who had multiple job titles on the film, and that was uh, John McCullum, who was a friend of Munzee's. He got the job because Munzee was like, hey, I'm shooting this movie down in Florida. 
they need a guy. Do you want to come do it? That's how that's how he got the job. Uh, this was McCollum's second film. His first was the trauma movie Surf Nazis Must Die. Uh-huh. And on that film, he composed the score and served as the special makeup effects artist. Uh, and he would take on both of those jobs on Miami Connection as well. So he's doing the music. That's not the Dragon Sound songs, but all the background stuff, which honestly, the score to this movie, pretty good. Very synth heavy, very 80s, but I think it's pretty good. And he does all of the makeup for like the gore effects, like when the guy gets his face sliced with the sword or when nice. uh, when Jim gets his chest sliced, you know, things like that. That, that which, was which is better than it has any right to be. By yeah. the way, yeah, yeah there's some good. good honestly, it looks pretty good. <laughs> the guy with the the sliced face, like that, looks pretty good for a cheap little movie that was just made by a bunch of nobodies in Florida. You know, like mm-hmm. it looks pretty good. Uh, and at the end, when the white ninja gets his head chopped off, mm-hmm. the the severed head prop was actually a leftover prop from Surf Nazis Must Die that he had kept. He just had a severed head like in nice. storage, so he decided he'd reuse it. Yeah, Isn't yeah, just reuse the props. That's yeah, good why stuff. not? Yeah. Like in a uh, pumpkin head when they reused like a predator body or something. Yeah, I love that. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. how you that's how you save money. Uh, Joseph Diamond too. I, I guess we didn't really mention, but he was a he was a student at UCF, uh, and he was in the computer science department there, which is how uh, all that shooting happened oh, okay. over there. And that and this, this is the reason actually. I why they're all wearing thing. UCF shirts. So yeah, yeah. Uh, they're just promoting it. So yeah. the school went along with it. The reason I even looked up that Leeson guy was because you know, he talked about like pretty much everybody in the school were actual just students and professors and stuff. Oh, and gotcha. So he was saying like on the board where that one professor is like pointing to the board and saying like, congratulations for coming into fourth. He was like, we literally, we really did come in fourth. <laughs> so, uh, so I guess it's safe to say that guy is just a professor, not that, that John Leeson. So strike well, that from the record. I, I Kurt, like Kurt make a note. <laughs> <laughs> Well, speaking of that final fight scene, you know, the one, uh, the big climactic battle in the swamp or where, whatever it is, uh, mm-hmm. none of the actors wanted any part of this because Kim and Park wanted to film this in a disgusting mosquito infested swamp area that was inside like a local park there in Florida. And Florida is bad enough. Florida's I was going to say <laughs> disgusting mosquito infested swamp area, a.k.a. Florida. (laughs) You're allowed to say that because you lived there for like five years. (laughs) Um, And they told Kim, there's no way we're getting in that water. So up until this point, there had been several times when they were making the film, the people involved, especially the cast, just kind of wanted to give up. It's hard making a low budget movie, especially when you're working with a lot of, you know, non-professionals. It's a tough shoot. It seems to be going on forever. All these people have jobs as well because Mm -hmm. they're not getting paid a lot for this. Mm -hmm. Uh, But YK Kim's enthusiasm was always very infectious. That's one thing you'll always see about this guy is like he can motivate people. I mean, there's a reason this guy has a career as a motivational speaker. <laughs> In addition yeah. to being a Taekwondo master, he he travels a country and he gives motivational speeches. He was always able to get the cast and crew excited about making the movie. Uh, anytime that they were ready to like throw in the towel and quit, he was able to talk them back into it. Just like we, we talked about this a little bit during our Sam Raimi series, how like he's able to get people to do crazy things just because he's so enthusiastic about it, that they'll, they'll do things they might not be willing to otherwise. YK mm. Kim's kind of got that same thing. You know, he's got that same skill. So this scene though, the scene of the swamp, which is a big scene because it's a big fight scene. It lasts several minutes. This scene kind of, 
pushed his coercion skills to their limit. And uh, he was not able to like talk people into it. They're like, there's no fucking way we're getting in that, that nasty water with Ugh. mosquitoes everywhere. We're going to be covered in caro syrup blood, which is only going to make the bugs worse. Yeah. Like, we don't oh, want to do God, that. I didn't even think of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're covered in sugar, basically. So, so Kim goes to plan B. Plan B is he goes to his car, he grabs a bottle of Jack Daniels, and then he just gets his cast to start taking swigs of Jack Daniels there on set. (laughs) So he couldn't motivate them with his words, but a little bit of liquid courage, I guess, helped. Uh, I also love watching the scene, knowing that everyone was a little bit drunk filming that last battle. It makes it a lot, makes it a lot better. Oh yeah, for sure. And just listen, kids. It, when you get into filmmaking, be sure to keep a big bottle of whiskey in your car. Yeah, that's 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 just good advice. I'm going to say keeping an open bottle of Jack Daniels in your car at any point is a bad idea. <laughs> you were a former cop. <laughs> former, former, former. Yeah, yeah. Come on. Um, so also also swordplay. Jack Daniels before swordplay. Always. Mm. So that was actually the last the last sequence that they filmed was that final battle doesn't normally happen that way. Things are shot out of sequence, but in this case, that's the last thing they shot. Got the film edited. Kim saw the finished film in late 1986 and he says it turned his stomach. So the film he thought contained too much violence, a depressing plot and jumbled editing. And despite being a producer and the author of the film story, he actually had very little say so over the film's content. So he walked out of his private screening of the film. He went home and says that he slept. He was so depressed. He slept for 48 hours straight. He was physically and mentally exhausted saying, quote, financially, I was dead. Morally, I was dead. I just wanted to forget the movie, but he couldn't do that. That's not in his nature. You know, this film had been a labor of love. Uh, Kim saw its potential to, in his words, change the world. And he eventually bought out his two partners and attempted to sell the film to Hollywood for wide distribution, which proved to be kind of tough. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, is an, here's another quote from him. Every distribution company rejected it after screening and said to me, don't waste your time. Just throw it away. It is trash. When he took it to the Con- International Film Festival in the spring of 1987, he was told it isn't a movie. <laughs> so, wow. Uh, but he was undaunted. He, was, he had put too much blood, sweat, and tears into this film. He had devoted years of his life to planning and filming it, neglecting his taekwondo school and leveraging it to near bankruptcy. Uh, he had relied on the generosity of more than 1,200 friends and students who either had a role in the movie or contributed props and locations, and he didn't want to let all these people down. So in the behind-the-scenes documentary on the making of the film, Kim says that in this moment of despair, he says, quote, my mom came to my heart. She said, hey, YK, when you die, your body will rot. As long as you live, do your best. Break your limitations. And that visit from, I guess, his mom's ghost uh, inspired him to continue working on the film. Nice. So that's exactly what he did. Uh, Richard Park was unavailable to do any reshoots at this point. He was probably off making another movie. So Kim took it upon himself to read eight books. He's very specific eight books about filmmaking and to just do the reshoots himself. And this time he actually scripted some of the scenes with the help of Joseph Diamond, who we mentioned him earlier. We mentioned him several times, but he plays the drummer in the film. 
but uh, he also has a screenplay credit. If you you're, if you're watching the movie at the beginning of the movie, it says screenplay by Joseph Diamond, and that's because he helped write the reshoots. Even though there was no real screenplay for the rest of the film, but they mm. had to credit somebody, I guess. So the guy who wrote at least a little bit gets that credit. So they write several other scenes for the film, including an all new ending where Jim gets to meet his long lost father. Because in the original cut of the film. Uh, which which is when it was called Escape from Miami, Jim actually dies from his wounds. It is a downer of an ending. Yeah, there's a part of it, I think, where he's like dragging Jim's body and he's actually dead in the movie that's, that's still in there. Um, uh, well, no, at, well, he's dragging his body in, in the film. Oh, he in the dies film. in an ambulance, doesn't he? He dies in a car. Oh, so yeah. So the way the, because I, I watched Escape from Miami, the, the original cut, and the scene you're talking about where they're dragging, they're dragging him like through the water and stuff, which is gross, but he's still alive at that point. And they have him mm-hmm. in a car. It's like their convertible that they're in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I swear to God, this is how the movie originally ends. Okay. They're in the car. Jim is dying and they're driving and an airplane flies over them like landing. And they say something along the lines of that's the airplane that Jim's dad is on. And then the movie <laughs> ends. <laughs> Like, it's so sad. <laughs> it's just Jim dies. They point out that his dad is coming to meet him, but that uh, obviously we know that when his dad lands, he's going to find out that his long lost son is dead. And the oh movie cuts, cuts to fucking credits. <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of great. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, supposedly, too, at, at COD, what you said, everybody told him that these these were not real. This was not a real movie, yada, yada, yada. Um, but supposedly one of the studios or one of the potential distributors was kind of nice and sat down with him, he said, and told him some changes he could make. And one of the specific notes they got at uh, Con was that he said, the audience hate hates that ending. You cannot, you cannot use this. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, so you got to, you got to re- do some reshoots fix that ending because that's just not going to work. I don't know how anyone ever thought that ending was a good idea. Like it, it is, it is insane. <laughs> it is awful. It might've worked in maybe some other country or, you know, or where... it might've worked in another movie where it wasn't, I mean, this movie has a, even in that version. And there are a couple of other scenes in the escape from Miami cut that are kind of on the sadder side, like, like uh Mark, YK Kim's character talking to Jim about them all being orphans. Like that's there's a little bit mention of that in the film, but they they have like a heart to heart on the beach later on. And it's very like sad and it feels very out of place mm. in the overall movie that it exists in, you know, because yeah. the rest of the movie is like, you know, catchy Friends songs forever. about friends. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like it yeah. doesn't make a whole lot of sense. One of the interviews I saw with them, you know, they mentioned, you know, about everybody being orphans and stuff. And they said this was all like Park, the director. It was his it was his stuff because he he liked he said it had to have uh drama i think they may mm-hmm. use another word but like it needed drama so they had the uh orphan thing and, th- and the that ending thing was, yeah that ending thing was him too and oh so, i believe that yeah yeah they were like uh yeah we had to reshoot it because he kind of went hard on the ending <laughs> it's a little too it's a little too dark it's yeah. a little too dark with a new and improved version of this film completed kim hit the sidewalks to promote the movie he visited countless restaurants bars and grocery stores he was hanging up movie posters, shaking hands, kissing babies, you know, doing everything he could to drum up publicity for the film. Like we said, YK Kim is a hell of a self-promoter. I mean, that's, yeah. that is, that's why he got as far as he did with his martial arts schools. Mm. And he finally premiered the movie locally in October. 
in August of 1988 with the help of a small distribution company called Manson International who purchased the rights for $100,000. It screened in just a handful of theaters in Orlando, Daytona, and Melbourne. Hey, that's where I, that's where I lived. What Melbourne? Yeah. I can't remember where I I knew you lived in central Florida and not far Mm -hmm. from Orlando. How far is that from Orlando? So it's about 45 minutes South of Coco. So roughly about 45 minutes South, uh, just South, Southeast ish. Uh, We were on the, we were on the East coast of Florida there. I meant to say it earlier, but that beach they're on is Daytona beach. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Kim would later say I was so excited and I had no doubt that we would pack every theater and it would be a blockbuster. I'm just gonna let, I'm just gonna give that a nice little yeah, yeah. Um, moment of silence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So uh critics, of course, disagreed. The Orlando Sentinel called it the worst movie of 1988. Uh, that was before the movie premiered, by the way. So the movie didn't really stand a chance when your own local paper calls it the worst movie of the year. Oh man. And within three weeks, it had disappeared from the like eight movie theaters that it was showing in. Oh. And for most small regional genre films like this, that would be the end of the story. But that's kind of where the story for Miami Connection really begins. So get ready for another three hours of this episode, folks. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, over the years, Miami Connection became an underground cult film, the kind of film that got traded at conventions, uh, usually in like third or fourth generation VHS dubs, or just a movie that just got whispered about. Like, have you heard of this movie, Miami Connection? I've always wanted to see it, you know, but people had not actually seen it. They just knew it by reputation. Mm -hmm. Uh, YK Kim would later recall that there was a period of several years where magazines and talk shows would request interviews with him to talk about the movie, but he just ignored most of them. He thought people were joking. He had no idea that people were actually trying to talk about this movie. Jeez. And then in 2009, a guy named Zach Carlson, who was a programmer at the Alamo Draft House in Austin, Texas, found a copy of the film on eBay and he made a blind bid on it, having never seen the film. And he won, a, you know, this is an actual 35 millimeter reel of the film. He won it on eBay for 50 bucks. Huh. So he screened a reel of it uh, in the Alamo Draft House uh, and a few people who I guess people who probably worked for the theater, they got to watch it with them and they went bananas. So he immediately scheduled the movie to play during their weekly exploitation series, which is called weird Wednesdays. And when they started showing it there, audiences just ate it up. Like they loved this shit. Hmm. Carlson then pushed the film to a guy named Evan uh, Husney, Evan Husney, who uh, at the time was the creative director for the Alamo draft houses distribution arm, which is called draft house films. It doesn't exist anymore, but uh, it did for several years. And then in December of 2009, Husney called YK Kim. He, he tracked him down in Florida. Uh, he's very easy to find. Cause like I said, I, I found his you know, personal website <laughs> in, a, in a very easy, quick Google search. Yeah. And so he calls YK Kim and tells him that he wants to re-release the movie. And Kim thought this was like some sort of cruel joke. So he hung up on him. <laughs> and this, this goes on several times where Evan is calling him. Kim thinks it's just a prank and he just keeps hanging up on him. He would later say, I was wondering why they wanted to distribute this movie that the public had rejected and Hollywood had treated like trash 25 years ago. If you're wondering why draft house films isn't around, by the way, it's because of this. <laughs> and that's the Miami connection. <laughs> uh, Husney persisted. And after courting Kim for several months, he was able to make a deal to resurrect Miami connection. And so finally, the film got the national theatrical release that Kim had always wanted. After playing at several prominent film festivals where it received the same type of reaction that it had been getting in Austin, 
The film rolled out nationwide in theaters before being released on DVD and Blu-ray. And the film received kind of a critical reevaluation as well. Um, and not none of the critics who reviewed it during its re-release went so far as to call it some sort of like lost classic. Uh, I mean, let's not kid ourselves here, but enough time had passed that people were able to appreciate it for what it is rather than judge it against some unrealistic expectations. Uh, but of course, I'm sure that there are still many people on the internet who still judge the film harshly because they just don't get it. Well, as usual, yeah, you can find some people online that um, don't get the Miami connection and uh, they just need a nap. <laughs> the thing is, is that actually you'd be surprised. There's we're going to talk about this. We got, we got a lot to talk about. I got I got something I want to ask you guys at the end. All how right. do you feel about star ratings in a certain yeah. way? <laughs> not tied, but <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that that question's not for me. No, that's that, that's a whole episode I think where we have to. <laughs> uh, uh, let's see here, because like here's an example. Here's the first review. And it calls it hilarious camp. It's one star. This is from IMDb. One star out of ten. I was attending the school in Central Florida when it was filmed at the time. So I'm one of the few people who actually saw this movie in a theater when it came out. Such fond memories. A friend and I still quote the movie to each other uh, to this day. Dialogue, acting, plot, fight scenes, direction, all uniformly bad. The audience was laughing so hard at some points that we couldn't hear the dialogue. Even during a touching scene where one character was tearf tearfully describing how he became estranged from his father. Y.K. Kim's classic response was one we still quote. I did not know you had a father. I feel a little guilty for slamming the movie here. By all accounts, Y.K. Kim is a decent and charitable guy. He just has no business making movies. I doubt this movie is that available, but it's probably worth viewing for pure camp value with a group of drunk friends. Um, this was from 2007, so maybe this was even like, I guess, was before, before the re-release, yeah. Yeah, before the re-release. But wow. it seems like he's like, I still kind of love it. Yeah. You know? But he still and, gives it one star. But he gave it one star. All right. Uh, let's move on to uh, Anaconda 4065829. He don't want none. <laughs> uh, this guy's like uh, the title of his reviews uh, should make a connection between a cement floor and a foot. <laughs> All right. Uh, martial arts embarrassment that should bring shame to anyone practicing it. Here we have martial arts, ninjas, and a rock band. The result is a band that sucks ass and ninjas that look like they just emerged from a horrible costume accident. And let's not get started about the bad dubbing. The plot basically boils down to a group of friends who form a band, but when they aren't making the world's shittiest music, they're busy kicking the living shit out of morons whose job it is to be laughably threatening, wear stupid clothes highlighted by earrings that draw attention, and talk in a way that leaves more reasons outside the plot to kick their asses. <laughs> YK Kim not only has a poorly dubbed speaking role in this garbage, but he also shares blame with Wu Sam Park for directing. What they conjure up has less ambition than the average commercial selling shampoo products. This film is hailed a cult film by those that regrettably discover it. What they should do is bury it in a minefield somewhere in hopes that it meets a nasty end. This is a pointless charade of bad acting and special effects that are on par with a third grade art student. Forget Miami. The only connection that this film should be met with is the receiving blow of a baseball bat. Zero out of 10. 
Ooh. One thing that I would like to point out, because I don't think we've mentioned it, he, he mentions in that review that YK Kim has a poorly dubbed speaking voice. Um, a lot of the dialogue in this was actually had had to be re-recorded during ADR because when they were filming, like so much of this, is it's all on location. They didn't have any like built sets. Mm. Uh, and a lot of the dialogue could not be heard because it was just there were too many background noises and things like that. So most of the dialogue in this is actually re-recorded after the fact. Uh, you can't tell in a lot of scenes, but there are some scenes when you like you definitely can notice it. Um, uh, Angelo um, said, I forget his last name already. That's why I'm just talking to him. Yeah. Like, like we're friends. Um, <laughs> he said that there was actually a situation too. In one interview, I remember that, um, that the sound guy turned off the limiter and uh it just everything peaked out and got all crappy and distorted and you couldn't hear anything yeah so they had to redub some of that damn all right so i'm gonna blow through some here that are gonna bring up the next topic of discussion about this a little bit i guess right. because is it a half star movie these are all half star reviews but should they be because here's Corey who says jesus christ this almost isn't even a movie. You change one or two scenes and this is something else entirely, like a series of completely inept and charming vignettes or an extended music video. The story's incoherent. The actors are tragic, but I laughed the whole way through and the music is so legit good. Uh, <laughs> Adam says, I don't know what UCF's greatest failure is. It's football team four years ago, the financial scandal with the building I work in that took down a president, it's parking situation, the upcoming lazy river, or the fact that its key location is this entertaining travesty. <laughs> An entertaining travesty. An entertaining travesty. This is what I'm talking about. JV says, there's never a dull moment to Miami Connection's wild ride of misguided autourism. It could have leaned far much more into YK Kim's position of star writer-director, but he's far more reserved than, say, Tommy Wiseau. All around a landmark film from a landmark year for bad cinema. That's half star. Wow. Uh, <laughs> uh, Greg gave it a half star. If you're not laughing at how bad it is, you're being utterly charmed by its earnest sweetness. Half but a star. half star? Half star. Half um, star from Phoenix. Ugly people shouldn't be in movies. I can say this as a fellow ugly. I must have mixed <laughs> the... <laughs> uh, Peter says, it's no samurai cop, but holy shit is it Miami connection. I apologize to my housemates as I'm going to be singing Friends Forever and it gets the ninja for several weeks. <laughs> but a half star. Uh, Sirahana, half star. When we... When he went in for the punch, stopped, and the other guy just sucked his knuckles, I knew this was one of my favorite films of all time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, here's Jacob has a letterbox. What half star? Miami Connection is the best movie ever made. Even in the long and boring parts, they're somehow funny. Everyone is 60 years old and it's trapped in college. The acting is horrible, seeds have no point, and it's beautiful. The worst part of this film is how I can't buy the soundtrack. He called it the best movie ever made and gave it a half star. And he gave it a half star. This is what I'm talking <laughs> about. What the fuck? And then I'm going to read this last one. I'm sorry. I know I'm going on forever, but a half star from August. This is one of, if not the worst movies I've ever seen. And that's saying something. I've seen a lot of shit. That being said, this is pure gold. Absolutely must see. And, uh, <laughs> but then there's this person, Arth, who gave it a half star and gave it this amount of dedication that I have, I have to read this on the show. It goes like this. Something you may not know about me is that I roadied for Dragon Sound on their disastrous 88 regional tour of the Southeast. Everything that could go right went wrong, 
and sadly, not all of us survived the journey. What follows are a few brief excerpts from my tour journals, which I kept at the time. My complete journals will be published this winter. May 9th, Miami. I feel my life slipping away as I watch a spider crawl up the broken window of the garage. Spent the morning picking up fragments of molars off the practice space floor. Another night with Dragon Sound. Another fight to the death. The band is in good spirits. I thought Mark's nose grab trick would get old by now, but it never does. I can't wait to be back on the road, ready to rock, fight, and fuck, or any combination you got. June 17th, Jacksonville. The show went okay. Sometimes I think the band spends too much time getting the crowd exciting and not enough focusing on their instruments. But I'm not in the band, so I'm just the amp bitch. Just because these guys are all lethal black belts, they keep me on the outside a lot of the time. They go around demanding kisses from every woman they see, but Aunt Bitch doesn't get any kisses. Starting to hate Mark's no nose grab move, especially when he does it to <laughs> me. But hey, that's life on the road with the greatest rock and roll band in the world. June 15th, Charleston. At the end of my rope, the cocaine use, the crabs epidemic, and the nightly fights are out of control. I am watching my favorite band destroy themselves. What happened to the feel-good vibes? Puked out, expurged like blood into a gas station urinal. I have rebroken my fist again, wondering if I should bother with the cast. My nose is aching. Fucking Mark called, called up my friend. He drums for a new band called the Lone Rangers. They sound cool and more socially conscious. Maybe I'm growing up, thinking about moving to Seattle and getting into that scene. Dragon Sound is burning up fast. Anyway, that's, that's a person's half-star <laughs> review. I want to see a mockumentary. <laughs> Oh about, my God! Yes, about the Dragon Sound World Tour, uh, oh, and, and, God. Then I, and then I want to see the uh, Dragon Sound and uh, and Lone Rangers crossover event that we all wish for. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it's so crazy that these people, these last ones especially, gave it all half star to me, like it, because they seem to love it. Even that last guy, if you're willing. To write that. To go to that much trouble, yeah. yeah for yeah. for a half-star review. Like, is it a half-star? Because I get it. Like you said, the movie's not classic cinema. Right, but, yeah. But you love it. Like, right. it's fun. Yeah, I mean, well, this is something I was going to, to get into later in this episode anyhow. So uh, let's talk about then the idea of... Friends Forever? <laughs> the... the so bad it's good movie ah. because i think that's where most people put this movie and that kind of sounds like that's where these people are coming from right gary wouldn't you say right yeah so i've said this before i don't believe in guilty pleasures i've said this before on the show um i think that if you like something uh there's something something brings you joy if it's not hurting other people there's no need in being guilty about liking something you know right yeah. um i mean if you like to watch shitty reality television that's your and if it makes you happy for an hour then fucking do it you know if you like listening to bad music that's fine if i get in your car and you make me listen to it then you're hurting somebody else so you know don't make me listen to fucking shine down or whatever oh uh, come on <laughs> <laughs> but i don't believe in guilty pleasures uh and i don't believe in so bad it's good movies i don't mm. like that term mm. 
so when I was, and it's funny because this is, I mean, this is a stance that I've had for a long time. Uh, it's something that I, I say pretty regularly, but when I was researching this episode, I did a little Googling to see if there were any, uh, if I could find any like articles or anyone writing about like the idea of a so bad it's good movie or, or any other folks out there who were anti so bad it's good like that moniker you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and when i did that lo and behold the first article that i found was from a newspaper in toronto who was interviewing zach carlson about miami connections premiere in toronto oh, and yeah. in that article carlson was quoted as saying i don't think miami connection is a is bad i don't think so bad it's good even exists the, that whole way of approaching movies is complete bullshit. It frustrates me to no end that that's how people have to com- compartmentalize films to enjoy them. And uh, that's and with that quote, I think me and Zach Carlson became best friends. He doesn't know it yet, but I, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that that I mean that's exactly how I feel. I think if a movie is entertaining to you, then how is it bad? What what makes it bad? If I'm if I'm spending an hour and a half watching Miami Connection and I'm you know, howling with laughter the whole time. How is that movie bad? Am I laughing at some of the ineptitude behind it? Yeah, but I'm enjoying myself. I gave this movie five fucking stars on Letterboxd because mm-hmm. I had five stars worth of enjoyment out of my experience watching it. You know, uh, is the filmmaking amateur? Is the acting bad? Yeah, maybe, but that doesn't necessarily make a movie bad if you're still having fun with it. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. I mean, but, on, honestly, if you kind of like these folks here, I think, you know, the idea is, okay, I'm going to rate it based on the quality of movie that it is, but my personal thoughts on the film are going to reflect something completely different, which is where I think Gary might've been getting some of the confusion which i think you know ties into the discussion of star ratings and all that stuff but um yeah i think people just kind of as i mean i didn't know i i had no clue about any of this so when i sat down to watch it i went in completely cold you didn't know the backstory or anything this is your first time watching this right exactly yeah this was uh first viewing uh first knowledge of you had never heard of it before never heard of it and um, I had an absolute blast. It was a lot of fun. Is it? Is it the best made movie? Absolutely not. No. But would I watch it and take a shot? Everybody said every time someone says "son of a bitch." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I mean, we heard enough of those, uh, you know, in the uh, in the reviews that Gary read of like, I would watch this getting drunk with my friends. I was like, perfect. Yes. Yeah. I so here. Let's go ahead and make it official. Here is the cinema shock. Uh, drinking game to go with Miami connection, take a shot. Every time someone says son of a bitch, do you guys have anything to add? (laughs) Well, we we should go through it and figure it out ourselves, but yeah, yeah, yeah. this, this idea of so bad, it's good. I'm with Justin on that too. Like I, I, uh, I originally, I know exactly where I first, like it clicked for me. It was a while back with uh, uh, when there was a Nerdist podcast. I remember Penn Gillette being on the Nerdist podcast and, uh, he talked about because I think Hardwick or somebody had mentioned something about ironically listening to something or ironically liking something. And and Gillette was like, why, why do you say it that way? 
or like what like ironically and he's like yeah he's like what's what's ironically liking something he's like you either like it or you don't like it he's right like it's it's there's no two ways about that like he said that when he was younger he remembered going to seeing see or for when it when it worked for him he went to go see dean martin mm. and he was like when he when he first got to vegas or something i think and he went to vegas and dean martin was on the bill and he was like i want to go see dean martin and him and his friends went to drink and and make fun of Dean Martin, I guess. And, uh, <laughs> and they said, and he was crazy. Like he had a great voice, but he was a psychopath. Like he was telling stories that were so weird. And yeah. it was like, but then he's like, as we got out, we're like, Oh, that was cool. We're ironically watching Dean Martin. And he's like, but something like clicked with me. And he's like, I had a great fucking time at that show. Right. And he's <laughs> like, and I'll always remember this. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the best concerts I've ever seen in my life. And he's like, fuck you guys. I love Dean Martin. He's yeah. like, this, I don't know. And it was just, it just clicked for me that, that when he goes on and explains it, then I'm like, yeah, you just, you like it or you don't. And I guess I'm looking at these reviews and I'm thinking, okay, I get that probably a lot of people are thinking what they have to do with the star review is say, uh, this is, how great of a cinematic masterpiece this is you know like only you know i don't know fucking schindler's list can have five stars or something and not right miami connection because it wouldn't make sense but i i don't know for me the the star rating is your star rating what yeah. did, what do you feel when you what how did that? you feel which is why i said i gave the movie five stars because i think i got five stars worth of enjoyment out of it because to me this mm. was a five-star experience you know, uh, and that's how I'm rating it, not based on what I think it should be uh, based. I'm, I'm rating it based on what it is and, and my connection to it. My Miami connection. Hey, there it is. <laughs> I will say, though, that I, it made me feel as I was saying that I felt a little guilty for picking on Todd about his star ratings. But yeah. I stand by that. Todd no, because also because Todd, star for Todd quantifies his star ratings too much which i think i think star rating should be a gut kind of reaction todd uses it like a scoring system I, well because uh, i don't know any better i'm just like I, you know until someone actually tells me so i'm paying attention i'm making some notes while we're talking i was like oh so this is how you do star ratings okay. i do it based on gut feeling like what does this movie feel like to me you know, mm. that's how I do it. It's not a, it's okay. not a, it's not a point system. Gotcha. Uh, but Gary, going back to what you were saying, like th- that idea of irony, that that's something that I feel like, especially a lot of, uh, I think it's a post Gen X kind of thing. Uh, so it, it's something that you see a lot with elder millennials and, and, and millennials like us, uh, where they feel like they have to view everything through a, the prism of irony. Because it's not enough to say like, oh, I enjoyed this movie. They have to go like, yeah, that movie. And that's like, a, it's, a, it's like a defensive reaction to where they can say that they like something without worrying about people making fun of them for liking it. So they, mm-hmm. so they, they like it ironically. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And the thing with this movie is when they were making this movie, when YK Kim made this movie, there was not a hint of irony in the entire endeavor. The creation of this film was an an act of sincerity. Kim had no idea how to make a movie. He didn't know any real actors. And he got the movie made anyway at a great personal expense because Mm -hmm. he believed in it. He wasn't doing it to make like a, 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 a so bad it's good movie. He's doing it to because he sincerely wanted to get his message out into the world. You know, and that 
is what appeals to me about Miami Connection and movies like it is that sincerity, even if the results are at times laughable. Uh, and I'm not going to pretend like that Miami Connection is some kind of masterpiece of, of filmmaking skill, but there's an earnestness to it. Mm-hmm. Well, that goes back That's to appealing. That, yeah, I was going to say that that reminds me of like even how I turned the page in our Wachowski series on uh, accepting uh, Speed Racer because I'm like, because uh, earnestness means something to me too. Like, yeah. uh, you know, and just the, just a person really believing in what they're doing, you know? And so I, I don't know, I, I guess it's a little bit different, but for me, like with speed racing, you know, there was this, this desire to make something wholesome, just something right. good and put it out there into the world. It felt and people like. thought that and, was cheesy because it it doesn't have, because it came out the same year as fucking the dark Knight. And they thought everything should have an edge to it, but not everything needs an edge. Yeah, and it's bright and happy and mm-hmm. fun, and and then it's like this movie is that same way. Like it's 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 uh this this guy. I mean, with far less skill, obviously, sure. of course. But but th- that just adds to the charm of it. This guy exactly. is working his ass off to make a movie, and he's failing at making a Spielberg film. Right, but he's you know he's still making a movie, and he's he's succeeding done, and- at making a YK Kim film. Yeah, yeah. It's the same way with like I guess the room in that manner. So yeah, uh, and and this movie, you know, there's a reason that this movie has garnered such a big cult following, and I think the sincerity behind it, especially with YK Kim, is a big part of that. And this movie does get lumped in with stuff like the room and like Birdemic. You know, these are all made by people who have no idea what they're doing. (laughs) But (laughs) I think that even the room and Birdemic, which I enjoy to an extent, uh. I don't think that they have the innocence that Miami connection has. That's a great because point. YK Kim wanted to tell a story that's about Taekwondo and friendship. The, that's what he wanted yeah. to tell a story about uh, where it, whereas like the room is all about um, it. Uh, we'll get into that. The room's about all kinds of stuff. <laughs> but, and the room is also a big reflection of its star slash director, which is a much more complicated story. Probably uh, we'll, we'll do the room one day on here. I'm sure. But uh, my, I, like him, he literally thinks that Taekwondo can change the world. And Miami connection was his way of getting that message to people. Now, is that naive? Yeah, that's incredibly naive. He thinks but, right now, as we're taping this, if he could get Putin and Zelensky, like, in a, yeah. in a in a class yeah mm-hmm. right then all is well all is well like he believes that legitimately uh and that's naive but it's also sincere and it's also well-intentioned and i'm not sure how anyone can view that type of sincerity with ironic detachment it's also mm-hmm. just in a feel-good story uh yeah. in the well end, in, in the in the in the final cut <laughs> Well, no, no, no. And I'm actually talking oh, about YK story. in real life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. This guy busted his ass to get this mm-hmm. made and then thought he had failed at the end. And now, because of his earnestness and because of what he did and what he was trying to accomplish, it was seen by other people like that that also got that same feeling watching right. it, I have to That's think. That's what people and, connected with. Yeah. And so now the movie's been rediscovered. And right. 
you know, it's distributed everywhere and anybody can see it. So at the end of the day, he won. He got what he wanted. The movie yeah, is out. It took there. a long time, but he got it. He doesn't have a world peace, but he's got no, this but movie. Yeah, this movie is available to everyone. Hey, it's well on its way, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> Thanks to Miami Connection. <laughs> well, and this is something that I bring up a lot on this podcast and, and a lot when talking about movies in general is that I like to judge a movie based on what it is, not what on we, what we think it should be, but what it is. And that means appreciating a movie for both its strengths and its limitations. And I'm not saying that there's not plenty to laugh about in Miami connection. I mean, it is hilarious. Yeah. Unintentionally. So in many cases and in pretty much all aspects, a poorly made film, but I've also seen movies released by major studios with budgets that are 200 times the budget of this film that have bored me out of my mind that I'd never want to see again, despite being made by competent crews and professional actors. Mm-hmm. So if I enjoy this insane and incredibly appealingly weird movie, because this is a weird fucking movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a movie where this is a movie where there is a rock band who all live together in a house where they don't ever seem to wear shirts, uh, who <laughs> solely sing songs about Taekwondo. <laughs> and, and this is a movie where ninjas ride Harleys. And there's a, this is a movie where the, a rival band gets so angry about losing a gig in some lame Orlando nightclub that they hire ninjas to kill the rival band. Uh, that's how weird this movie is. Uh, and, I don't know how I can like a movie that's this odd and strange and filled with kind of joy and sincerity and still call it a bad movie. Mm. Like I, th- to me, that's not a bad movie because I don't get bored during it. I enjoy the hell out of it. Uh, it I can say it's a poorly made movie, but that's different than being a bad movie, you know? Right. Right. Those are two completely different things. So Todd, you, you are the martial arts ex- expert here. Oh, thanks. I mean, but I mean, I, I don't know if you would consider yourself a martial arts expert, but compared to me and Gary, you certainly are. Fair enough. Because <laughs> uh, watching Miami Connection and a bunch of Shaw Brothers movies are mostly my extent of martial arts experience. Okay. Uh, so and the what only do you think- kick it I'm going to be doing later is back in the recliner. You know yeah. What I'm yeah. But- uh, what uh, some of the reviews that Gary read uh, mentioned, you know, the fight scenes being poorly done. What did you think of the fight scenes in this? It's, you know, there, there's some videos out there online of analyzing fight choreography versus martial arts practical application. Mm-hmm. A punch to someone's face in a actual fight looks a hell of a lot different than a punch that, it, that is designed to be filmed. Yeah. A lot of martial artists don't get that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if you're looking to have a fight scene that looks good on film, mm-hmm. you're going to have to, yeah, you're going to have to detract from your traditional training and traditional application of techniques because some of the best martial arts moves or, or techniques or application looks like garbage on film. Well, that's it why Bruce Lee does. had to slow himself down when he was yes. making movies because what he does in real life, you couldn't even pick up on a camera. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know, working in martial arts as long as I did and now currently am, uh, it's there's all different types of people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the fact that he had such a wide 
range of folks and resources to pull from makes me kind of, uh, I'll, I'll say sad that he didn't, that he wasn't able to make a higher quality of film. Sure. Um, because, you know, if you look at guys like Robert Rodriguez, um, hell, we just finished talking about Sam Raimi. They took the stuff they had around them and crafted uh, maybe not masterpieces, but certainly classics. Mm-hmm. And he, this one just, you know, it is in, in a world where now people are looking up videos online because they are wholesome. This is the perfect time for for Miami Connection to have a resurgence because yeah. because at at its core, like you said, it's earnest, it's wholesome. They're talking about friendship, and yeah, this this is this is great. And you know, in terms of the quality of the film, I just kind of wish he read eight books. Maybe nine would have would have been better. <laughs> well, I, I don't I, know, but think, you're right. I, I probably had, I had an absolute blast with it. Yeah. I think Ramey and, and Rodriguez, the difference would be too, is those guys were obsessed with filmmaking. So right. They, Whereas YK Kim fully admits that like he never, he goes to the movies like once a year. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, yeah. I don't have time to go to movies. So, yeah. but again, but the majority of this footage was filmed by Richard Park, who is a professional filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, YK Kim. Well, that's true. Show. Yeah. But I guess, yeah. oh, did he edit it too? No, um, uh, Munzee edited it. Oh, Munzee edited it. That's yeah, right. Maximum Munzee edited it. it I, you know, as we were talking about, you know, the earnestness of it, I kept thinking about, uh, again, you know, looking at my stand-up comedy background and stuff, there's something to be said about committing to the bit. Mm-hmm. I've seen enough young performers out there who can craft a decent joke, but they don't commit to it and it doesn't work. Right. Um, and I think with this... He's fully committed to the bit, but maybe just he he read he read a bunch of books on filmmaking, maybe not script writing or, oh, well, yeah. <laughs> or, or things like that. Or like I said, you know, the transitioning martial arts to look good on film. He focused on how do I get from point A to point B? That's I need to I need to do this one thing. Right. Understand. We understand um that filmmaking is such a collaboration and there are so many moving parts that you just can't focus on point a to point b yeah you just can't so at the end of the day you're left with something that is that warms a special corner of your heart but at the end of the day you can't you you can't really recommend it to folks without explaining exactly what they're in for. You yeah. know, wh- when you say, "Hey, Riff Tracks has done a lot of stuff with this movie," that kind of sets the stage of what <laughs> yeah. you're about to see. Yeah. Um. But yeah. I, either y'all watch the Riff Tracks thing. For this? No, I, I watched you really bad, and yeah. I never got a chance. Yeah. I never got around to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, overall, what appealed to both critics and audiences who saw it during its re-release and in the intervening years is the sincerity behind the film, what we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what and one of the interviews that I read around the time of its release, which is we're just over 10 years since its re-release at this point, and one of the interviews uh, that he gave, Zach, Zach Carlson told CNN, bad movies that people respond to aren't actually bad. That kind of gets to the point of what we were saying. Yeah. You know, he, he would go on to say, 
there's a sincerity within them that people latch onto. There's not a lot of technique or talent behind Miami Connection, but there's so much initiative and dedication behind it, even if they failed at what they were trying to do. They were really into it and really trying, and that's why people are responding to it now. Hmm. In a review for Slant Magazine, Rob a Humanic, he, he, and he saw it at the, one of those original like Weird Wednesday screenings at the Alamo. He said, uh, love it or hate it, it's doubtful you'll ever forget it, and it may just force you to redefine your definition of what constitutes good cinema. Writing for The Stranger, David Schmader said, to say that Miami Connection is bad is a crushing understatement. Miami Connection is so bad it makes Tommy Wiseau's The Room look like wild strawberries. <laughs> but out of this tragic mess of failure and incompetence, a distinctly sweet spirit emerges. Its source is the cumulative gameness and good sportsmanship of everyone involved in Miami Connection, which is drenched in a goofy joy that is contagious. And yeah. that's why I love this fucking movie. I mean, yeah. honestly, like th- those guys hit the nail on the head because there's a lot of really bad movies about there, like Tommy Wiseau's The Room, you know. Uh, but Tommy Wiseau's like th- that that movie isn't. It's not. It's 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 kind of mean spirited. Honestly, yeah. it's yeah. kind of a mean spirited movie. This movie is sweet. It's as sweet as a movie about cocaine and ninjas and uh, <laughs> rock bands and taekwondo could be yeah. somehow it manages it i don't know how but somehow it does so this is the point in the show guys where we get to our further viewing segment where we decide like if you're showing miami connection to some let's say we're having a little movie night with friends you've got friends coming over they've never seen miami connections so you're going to introduce them to miami connection but it's also a double feature what is you're going to show Miami Connection. What is the second movie in that double feature? Uh, so for mine, I would say from 1992, uh, directed by John Tuttlebob. Turtletob? Turtletob. Turtletob? I think it's Turtletob. <laughs> yeah, Turtletob. <laughs> uh, with a screenplay by Edward Emanuel with story by Kenny Kim. Uh, serving as an associate producer was Wu Sang Park, uh, who played a ninja in a little film called Miami Connection. Well, he um, also directed the fucking movie called Miami yeah, Connection. That's, yeah. that's Richard. <laughs> Wu Sang Park is Richard Park. Yeah, that's Richard Park. <laughs> uh, this film's stars Michael Trainer, Max Elliott Slade, and Chad Power were nominated for the Young Artist Awards Outstanding Young Ensemble Cast in a Motion Picture. Oh, I know what this is. 1993. Go does it have it. a does it have a character named Tom Tom in it? It sure as hell does. <laughs> it's three ninjas, baby. <laughs> I used to um, love that movie when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah, and it's you know the kids training Tom with the Tom Rocky and Colt Colt, and the yeah. father was the guy who played Egg Shin in Big Trouble in Little China. I can't remember the actor's name. Yeah, uh, yeah. but it's the same, the same guy. He he played the grandfather. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Three Ninjas. I love that movie when I was a yeah. kid. I, 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 I cur- I'm curious how it like holds up. Uh, John Turtletob, he he kind of turned into like a blockbuster guy. He did like National Treasure and, and the sequel and stuff like that. A lot yeah. of TV shows. Uh, but yeah, that was kind of earlier on in his career. But yeah, yeah I mean, that would be a good double feature. Emily. Yeah, I feel like it's got that same, uh, you know, family. Ninjas, family. Yeah, I feel like that that would make a good uh, double <laughs> yeah, feature. Yeah, that would be fun. Sure. Yeah. I like that. That's fun. That's fun. <laughs> how about you, Gary? Uh, I've got a couple here that I think yeah. would work. Uh, that I'll go the other way. I'll stick. I'll stay away from martial arts this uh, on this one and just Ooh. go with uh, movies that give me the same feeling. It's, go- it's going to be 
Uh, if, it, if it's not one of the Fast and Furious movies, I'm going to be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> it could have been, but that would have actually, that that's a great one. But because uh, of family. Yeah, because yeah, of family. Yeah. No, I just, <laughs> uh, I was going to go. Well, an easy one for me was like immediately, I think of like Troll 2. When yeah. I think of how yeah. earnest Good. the filmmaking process yep. was. Yeah, know? yeah. Absolutely. Especially when you watch that documentary, Best Worst Movie, and you realize mm-hmm. like we've had george hardy uh on the podcast back yep. when it was uh psychotronic film society yeah. i think and uh and, and that guy's just like the nicest fucking he's the guy. nicest dude <laughs> <And> <laughs> so, he really he was is. so proud and so happy to be doing you know to be working on the movie and uh and then just that you know there's these themes of like uh plant-based diets and stuff yeah. like that. And <laughs> trying to get like, trying to change the world and it's trying to be like a <laughs> horror movie at the same time and it's just like i don't know weird uh the other one is a movie i watched not too long ago that I, i've been meaning to go back to that i've always wanted to make like a tiktok video about or something just because i loved it so much but it's called uh, it's for us uh, from 1987 uh it's called rock and roll nightmare and, oh yeah uh, ooh. and uh that movie's a lot of fun a horror that is movie. a lot of fun but uh stars the guy uh john michael thor mm-hmm. and uh <laughs> that who was yeah. a an actual like musician i see swedish i think right yeah and he's also looks like thor like yeah. a big buff <laughs> yeah. long blonde haired guy and it's just you can tell everybody is trying in this movie and it's just <laughs> it's just a campy like just weird horror movie so mine and that, that one's fun because it it brings the rock and roll aspect yeah it, yeah that's damn. what made me think of it actually yeah. it was like oh it's another uh, movie with uh, music. You got some songs being played throughout, yep. even while they're battling demons. So mine, I, I, I had thought of two different ones. Um, one of them was Surf Nazis Must Die, because we brought it up. It's the same cinematographer. Uh, it's a fun movie. It's not as, I don't think it's as fun as Miami Connection, but it is fun. Uh, if you've never seen Surf Nazis Must Die, it came out about a year before Miami Connection, uh, directed by Peter George and distributed by uh, Troma. And you know uh, Lloyd Kaufman's company, and it's like a if you've never seen Surf Nazis, it's a it's set in the near future, and there are Nazis who are also surfers, and they must die. Uh, that that's the gist of it. It's not a great movie, but it's a super fun movie. Uh, now the other one that I thought of though is one you might not have heard of. It's called New York Ninja. So when I watched Miami Connection. I watched it on a uh, a fairly recent, recently released 4K set that Vinegar Syndrome put out. Vinegar Syndrome, I've talked about them on the show before. I absolutely love this company because they take these little like regional exploitation movies, just weird movies in general. I recently got like a Roadhouse 4K from them. I got Freeway from them, like weird little movies, and they treat them like they're in the criterion collection you know like they give them these deluxe packaging all kinds of special features and stuff and uh they took miami connection they took the stuff that was already done by draft house they put all those special features on their on their 4k plus produced new stuff and and found a copy of escape from miami the original pre-release cut of the film which is wild uh and the i will say the transfer looks absolutely stunning looks really great but another movie that they released, uh, they released it last year or 2021 is when they released it. Uh, kind of, it, it has not had quite the comeback story that Miami Connection has had, but it's got a pretty cool story and would honestly be worthy of an, an episode on its own probably. But it's a movie called New York Ninja. 
Uh, New York Ninja was filmed in New York City, as you can imagine. Uh, it, it stars a guy named John Liu, uh, and he also directed it, also wrote it, and he starts as a New York Ninja. He's basically just getting, like, revenge. It's a vengeance movie. But the movie got shelved because its original distribution company went bankrupt, and the movie never got released. So Vinegar Syndrome found it they they found the footage and it did not have any audio did not have any storyboards they had no scripts so a guy who uh, works for vinegar syndrome who's also a director uh curtis spieler is his name he took all he took the film he re-edited it not not having a screenplay or anything to go by so he doesn't know what the actual original story is he's just doing it based on the footage he has he uh he re-edits it they dubbed all new dialogue and they got here here's who they got to dub the dialogue because again there were the original sound elements were lost so they didn't have the original dialogue so in some cases they're having to read lips and things like that to try to figure out what's what's being said so here but here's who they got uh to do the dialogue they got don the dragon wilson oh they got michael berryman linnea quigley uh ginger lynn they got all kinds of like cult movie b movie people right they had an entirely new score written for the film by a band called voyager who does these really great like synthesizer songs uh and they basically recreated the movie using the original footage but everything else was new new edit new dialogue new music everything and they made, made a new movie and then they uh they released it in late 2021. It, it premiered at Beyond Fest out in Los Angeles. And then Vinegar Syndrome eventually released it on uh, Blu-ray and, and 4K. Uh, so it's got like, it hasn't had, like I said, not quite the comeback story of Miami Connection, but it's still this film that was not only lost. I mean, Miami Connection at least played in like eight movie theaters in Orlando. This movie never got released. Wow. It never got finished. And they finished the film and then released it to the masses. And I lo- And it's super fun. It is I mean, like I said, I mean, it's not a great movie, but it is a super fun movie Uh, and well worth seeing for people who are into, if you're into Miami connection, I feel like you would be into New York Ninja. Nice. That sounds sounds like fun. (laughs) It is. It's it's super fun. One I kept seeing on Reddit that kept being brought up was hard ticket to Hawaii. Yeah. I don't know that one. And I have never seen that movie, but uh, it's uh, apparently... Uh, in Hawaii, an undercover yeah. DEA agent and her civilian friends stumble upon a drug trafficking operation and have to enlist the help of all their colleagues and friends to go after the vicious drug kingpin. Directed by Andy Sedaris. Uh, on Reddit, every time somebody brought it up, uh, somebody would say, is that the Frisbee killing movie? And I was like, <laughs> oh, this sounds fun. But I, I just looked it up on IMDb just to see, but it's got, yeah, it's it it looks wild. <laughs> wow. And they say it's got a great 80s soundtrack as well. And uh I don't know. Anyway, so that's another one for people might be. What was it called again? Hard, Hard ticket, ticket to Hawaii. To Hawaii. Yeah. Okay. I'll have to check that one out. I have not heard of that one, but I will look it up. Uh I also thought, I mean, one of your reviews, Gary, I think mentioned Samurai Cop, and that would actually be a pretty fun double feature. Samurai yeah. Cop is a blast. I uh I don't remember anything about it if I've seen it. So uh, I remember Robert Zadar isn't it so that's all that (laughs) that's all you need that's all you need uh so i we're about to wrap things up but before we do gary do you have any additional fun facts about miami connection that we you need to get out into the world before we wrap this episode up 
I need you all to know certain things. Yes. No, I do have a couple that I thought were just kind of funny. Um, Angela, Angelo Gennati and Kathy Colley. Uh, I don't know if we mentioned this, but they were a couple also. They were actually engaged at the time of the filming of this movie. We did uh, mention that. Okay. Yeah. I can remember, <laughs> but uh, they got married obviously a little bit later. They divorced already, but uh, they're still friends. And uh, anyway, friends forever. Friends. Yeah. To eternity. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nice. Uh, the scenes where uh, they both get a little bit of uh, fun time. Uh, Kathy Colley, obviously, with uh, uh, Mr. Hirsch is mm-hmm. uh, her her boyfriend in the movie. Um, they get to do some makeout stuff, some sexy time. Um, they tried to keep them separate, not just for. I guess Hirsch had a girlfriend at the time who was very not cool with it, and uh, Angelo, she said, was cool with it, but. Just to be safe, they kept him separate. So the way they would do that is anytime they had to do any sexy time stuff with uh, Kathy Colley and Hirsch, they would uh, send Angelo to go get beer. <laughs> and really, that only happens a couple of times. Like they they kiss at one point, then they make out on the beach in that yeah. beach scene. Which when yeah. they were filming that beach scene, they did get like uh, I think the cops were not very happy about that because you're not supposed to have cars on the beach. Yeah, yeah, but that, <laughs> they supposedly got away with it. Yeah, I mean, well, they obviously got away with it. But uh, the, it's you say the beach scene. Um, they actually to make up to Angelo, they gave him those moments of. Uh, a lot of screen time during the beach scene and like him getting to fall into boobies. And- yeah. And then, the, and the ladies beat the shit out of him. Yeah. Like, <laughs> we, we had to give him a little something. What is he? He says um, something like, madam, may I have a kiss, a little kiss. Like what is a, what a strange <laughs> way to hit on somebody. Uh, this, this gentleman's he, never spoken to a woman before. No, they don't make <laughs> buns like that at the bakery. <laughs> Another little fun one they pointed out during the commentary was that uh, the uh, the trade station fight or the uh, you know the trade yard uh, they had the support at this time by the cops obviously because the cops show up at the end of it and they pull up you know and then everybody scatters and the cops were really excited about being in this movie so exciting are so excited in fact they forgot gun safety because apparently these were real cops in real outfits. But take a look when the two cops get out of the car to like say like, oh, what's up? what happened? They're talking to each other, but one of them just still has his gut out, like pointed yeah. directly at the gut. of. The I did guy. catch that. I was just <laughs> like, oh, wow. stop muzzling your partner. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> so they apparently heard about that later. Like, oh, we're not supposed to do that. <laughs> That's all your fun facts? That's all. When I watched this movie, I think that maybe Miami Connection was just a late bloomer you know maybe 1987 was not the time it was meant to be seen because had this movie been given a proper release at the time sure more people might have seen it but it may very well have been like quickly forgotten and we may may not even be talking about it today Uh, but one of the joys i think of miami connection is its spirit that can-do spirit that yk kim brought with him when he immigrated to america that same can-do spirit that led him to turn a single mat in a rundown taekwondo studio into one of the most successful martial arts school franchises in the country that's why we're talking about this movie that's why we're talking about miami connection now not because the film is great because again it's not particularly well made but it is proof that if you work hard if you work with integrity and heart your time will come. It might just take, you know, 25 years longer than you expected it to. Yeah. <laughs> and ar- around the time of Miami Connections original release, and I'll, I'll end the episode on this quote because I, I really uh, thought this was, was indicative of YK Kim's attitude 
Mm. Uh, he was being interviewed by the Orlando Sentinel. This is before the movie released, before the Orlando Sentinel called it the worst movie of the year. Uh, but he told them, <laughs> uh, I'm doing what I believe in. Success or failure with this, I have learned some valuable lessons as I have all through life. I am a winner. I will go forward. And I think that's an incredible attitude for him to have, uh, especially once the movie was a failure and he, you know, he did see success. Mm-hmm. It was 25 years later, but he still saw it. You know, uh, now he hasn't solved world peace yet, but uh, it's only been 10 years since the re-release. Give it a little time, right? Yeah. He's still working. <laughs> I mean, the guy has, uh, if you're interested, he does have a Taekwondo book out there. He also has a book that came out in 2005. It's on hardcover, hardcover, hardcover <laughs> from Amazon. Uh, I'm interested in, but it's like 25 bucks, but it's uh, winning is a choice. Maximize your life with the seven steps to build physical, mental, and moral fitness. Yeah. There's all kinds of like YouTube videos. There's a, the, I mean, the, that vinegar syndrome release actually has a couple of his, like, uh, it's got a commercial forum, which I, I, that's the one I sent to you, Todd, that I sent you a YouTube link for it, but it also has like a full half hour, like infomercial on it of him selling one of his books. Uh, it's, it's, it's a special feature on that, that vinegar syndrome release. So it's really great. I mean, the guy's still out there. He's still hustling, you know, (laughs) maybe he'll get to, what if he got, what if all this success though? Like, what if he gets to make another Miami connection? What if he gets to make Miami connection too? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling good about that. That sequel that involves the tour of a dragon. Yeah. I'd be there day one. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> day one absolutely i bet it would be pretty successful given the uh re-release so of this movie you yeah know, a lot of people have so seen too. this and know about it yeah yeah absolutely well that's all i got for miami connection guys our, our next episode is a new series we're going to be starting a new series if you want to know what that series is going to be you will have to listen to our bonus episode because that's where we'll be unveiling who we're going to be diving into next uh that's a weird Way to phrase that. Uh, <laughs> turns out it's Gary's mom. Oh, <laughs> oh, that's no. it. How did I miss that? Oh, oh, I should have uh, started first. If you, you thought you were going to have an episode without a your mom joke, folks, <laughs> we bring it. We bring we're it. a little different. We're a little different than Taekwondo over here at uh, <laughs> Strike first, strike hard, no mercy. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but listen to that episode and it, it's going to be a fun series. We're going to do a quick like four episode series. So it's not going to go on for, you know, months and months, but uh, it's going to be a cool one, I think. Uh, well, anyway, where can you gentlemen be found on the Internet? I am at this is Gary Horde on Instagram and Twitter. If you like wrestling, I host this is pro wrestling. Uh, it's at this is pro wrestling on YouTube at TIPW show on Instagram and other socials. I also work with the National Wrestling Alliance, and you can access all of their links in their bio on Instagram at NWA. If you like Star Trek, I'm working my way through the entire franchise in chronological order on my show, Computer Resume Podcast, available now wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Computer Resume. And I'm at Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and D&D Beyond. And I'm at Justin underscore Bishop. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, Letterboxd. Uh, the show is cinema underscore shock on Instagram and Twitter. You can also find all of our episodes as well as links to our discord and our merch, etc. And cinemashock.net. Uh, please, as always, like rate review, uh, especially if you're on Apple or you're on, if you're listening on Apple podcasts or you're listening on Spotify, uh, that's the best thing you do can do to support the show is just uh, rate review or better yet 
share us with all of your movie nerd friends. Uh, send us all out. That's that's how a show like ours gets to the masses is just by word of mouth, honestly. So help us out. Send us to a friend. If you have a friend who's into Miami Connection uh, or is into like so bad it's good movies, even though I don't like that term, uh, send this movie their way or send this episode their way. And I think they will enjoy it. Until next time. May the wings of liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other. Listen to me. I don't want to have any trouble. I just get the keys from Johnny. Don't bother us. I know you were just you were holding yourself back from talking in a weird uh, uh, offensive I, accent. I tried to keep the <laughs> I tried to keep the cadence, but not the good. accent. You did good. You got, great. You've grown. I struggled uh, yeah. with that earlier with the uh, I didn't you, know you have a father thing too. So yeah. I get it. You, well, I'm proud of you. Thank you. <laughs>